Audio Jungle. I'm honoured to take on this responsibility at a vital time for our country. I will take action this week to deal with energy bills. The markets are looking very, very closely at political pronouncements, um, and the UK does face some serious headwinds. This is Bloomberg Surveillance, early edition with Francine Lacroix. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition. I'm Francine Lacroix here in London. Here's what's coming up on today's program. Day one, at number 10, the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, names her cabinet and pledges action this week on soaring energy bills. Record fix China signals mounting discomfort with yuan weakness, setting its reference rate with the strongest bias ever. The yen sell-off accelerates. Plus, bears in control, stocks slide along with commodities as fears of aggressive Fed tightening, royal risk sentiment, the dollar hits another all-time high. So this is what the markets are telling us. Uh, the picture across the board, of course, one of dollar strength, aggressive monetary tightening from the Fed and other central banks at the forefront of investor worries. We could see another 75 basis point hike from the Fed. S&P futures pretty much flat. It's really Europe that's, uh, well, taking most of the brunt. If you look at the industry groups, all of them are losing basic resources down some 2.8%. Then we look at yen, our Mark Cutmore, very interesting thoughts on on yen currently at 143 it's you know pretty incredible to hear the messaging from officials saying it slid too far too quickly and yet um, markets being so on edge that they keep on selling it off but overall european stocks and let's look at the map to see the difference we heard from i think a couple of chief executives um Orchell, the Unicredit chief executive, saying that, look, he's expecting a recession uh, for, I think, Italy and Europe, but he says he doesn't know how much of a recession or how deep the recession will be. Uh, Mr. Saving, the chief executive of Deutsche Bank, also coming out with some comments saying it's almost impossible for Germany to avoid a recession. Then, of course, here in the UK, we'll look at Pound. Uh, there's a testimony of Andrew Bailey and other MPC members and we'll hear from the cabinet of Liz Truss. She is the new UK prime minister. She's appointed quasi quartain as chancellor of the exchequer. Her day one priorities include a major package of support to tackle the soaring energy crisis in Britain. I will deal hands-on with the energy crisis caused by Putin's war. I will take action this week to deal with energy bills and to secure our future energy supply. So let's bring in Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden with the very latest. Lizzie, you were outside number 10 today, uh, today, yesterday. Today we're expecting, of course, the cabinet to meet for the first time. What should we expect of them? Any minute now, we're expecting that cabinet meeting. Uh, well, we they filed into number 10 last night. Uh, that's when we found out confirming our expectations who would be in it and it is as expected a very diverse cabinet you've got the first black chancellor quasi Kwarteng 
Suella Braverman at Home Secretary, uh, James Cleverly, Foreign Secretary, and Kemi Badenoch, the uh, goes into trade. She, of course, had also run for the leadership. So really, trust showing uh, that she's rewarding loyalty because loyalty paid for her in the contest against Rishi Sunak, uh, it, arguably. Uh, but it may come back to bite her. The Times has a cabinet minister uh, reported today, uh, well, an insider, put it that way, uh, saying that she's not going to last two years given that she's keeping her enemies on the back benches. Um, Lizzie, her new cabinet meets this morning, as we say. What do we already know about what kind of policies they could be putting in place? Well, we heard some of Truss's priorities in her speech outside Downing Street yesterday. She said uh, the economy, energy, action this week, as you heard there, channeling Winston Churchill and the National Health Service will be her top priorities. But she's also got to tip her hat to Boris Johnson because, of course, she's riding his 2019 election mandate. Uh, and so she talked about the infrastructure commitments that she's going to uphold really it's leveling up in all but name but that slogan so associated with Boris Johnson uh, as you said the, the pound uh, really didn't seem to be too impressed by this speech it was pretty much undisturbed but you and I spoke to Philip Hammond the former chancellor yesterday and his message was that the markets are watching at this point they're really going to need some reassurance after the terrible summer the pound has had uh, on Truss's policies on the Bank of England, tax cuts, Brexit. So we'll hope to hear more from that in the coming weeks. Lizzie, what does this all mean for BOE officials? So there, you know, some of the officials, including the governor, will be hauled before Parliament's Treasury Committee this morning. Yeah, any minute now, uh, we're going to see the governor and co uh, in front of the Treasury Select Committee. Be interesting to hear, well, they're most likely to stand up for BOE independence because, of course, Truss has said that she wants to review the bank's mandate. Uh, also, looking out for hints as to what they're going to do in September. Catherine Mann, a BOE policymaker, this week didn't rule out 75 basis points. But because of these energy plans that we're hearing about, they've not yet been con confirmed by the trust team, but leaked documents suggest that they could cost 170 to 200 billion pounds. Uh, Bloomberg economics analysis suggests that they would mean inflation has peaked, a recession could be avoided, uh, and that 75 basis points isn't looking so likely in September. So we'll look for clues as to what we're going to get in the next meeting because, of course, the BOE has to take account of all the hawkish signals that we've been getting out of the ECB and the Fed. They certainly do. Lizzie, thanks so much. Lizzie Burden there at Westminster. Now joining us to talk about the markets, the impact, of course, this will have on sterling, but also FTSE, is Anna Stupnitska, a global macroeconomist at Fidelity International, and Christina Kino from our markets team. So thank you both for joining us. Christine, let's start off with you. I know that there's a lot of focus on dollar, but of course this also impacts, I guess, you know, what we see from the balance of payments and what it means for pound. Absolutely, Francine. I mean, this is kind of the issue that the pound is having at the moment, right? I mean, we saw
that initial positive reaction to Liz Truss's energy plan, both for businesses and consumers. But then that really didn't last long because there is this overwhelming counterforce, which is, of course, dollar strength. And I mean, this is the reason why that kind of trust honeymoon was very short-lived. It really only lasted a day. And, you know, you know, what we heard from investors yesterday as well, digesting through the plan is, you know, this is great at the onset, but we really need more specifics. How is the government going to pay for this? And what is this going to do to the UK's finances at a time when borrowing costs are the highest that they've been in years? Yeah. Anna, are you bullish on, on UK right now? I think um, it's fair to say that uh, we might be turning incrementally a little bit more positive uh, because the numbers that have been floated so far look big. Uh, this is a COVID-style response uh, to the crisis. Uh, but as you say, it's really all about the composition of that package and how it's funded, whether it's going to prove inflationary. And then, of course, that will um, have uh, implications uh, for what the BOE is going to do. We do think that the BOE will continue being hawkish for the time being, at least trying, uh, trying to front load those hikes a bit further, uh, partly to support the pound. Um, so, yes, some yep. positives potentially on the horizon, but we need to see the composition and the implications. Yeah. So, Anna, what is the right way to fund this? I don't know whether the markets in general have a preferred way if Liz Truss is going to continue with her tax cuts. Well, I think uh, from, from our perspective, um, uh, uh, making consumer pay for it later over the course of, of many years is probably the right way to fund it. So this is going to be uh, support now at the time of the crisis, but then consumers will have to pay for it later. That will not have implications, you know, obviously, on, uh, on, on debt, so no, no more debt. Uh, because if you do this in an unfunded way and borrow more, this might have implications on, on the curve, serious implications on the curve. Uh, kind of an EM-style uh, situation, which could be quite uh, risky, I think, for the for the UK. Um, Christine, when you look at stocks, and this is, I mean, if you're a FTSE 100 trader, it's very different if you're a FTSE 250. But how will this all pan out? Well, yeah, it's very interesting, right, Francie? I mean, of course, the FTSE 100 benefiting a little bit from that weaker pound story. And again, also getting that energy fill-up from uh, the energy crisis that we're dealing with. But then if you're a very domestically fo focused company, really your your focus is going to be on the state of the consumer, which we know is not great at the moment. But it was quite notable that FTSE 250 was outperforming yesterday, again, in reaction yeah. to this energy plan. And that really tells you how much it depends on the state of the domestic economy uh, moving forward. And so the performance of those stocks very much kind of dependent on whether this energy plan really will ease that burden for consumers, especially during the winter time. Yeah, and Anna, this goes back, I mean, we have a great story actually on some of the foreign buyers trying to scoop up some of, you know, the healthcare stocks because of the attractiveness of the UK, especially if you have um, lower sterling. Where do you see this economy going in four or five years? Again, I know there are a lot of questions about what Liz Trust wants it to be, but you know there are questions about the Northern Ireland Protocol and so on. 
Well, I think uh, I think that's very complicated. Uh, overall, um, I think from from a macro perspective, you know, we need to see um, we need to see high productivity. We need to see uh, transition um, towards uh, green energy uh, and all the investment in infrastructure. You know, potential uh, leveling up or continuation of that. Um, and really, uh, it is all about productivity, and I think that will shape uh, the path for growth overall and uh, for markets over the next few years. So really, attention is on that. Great. Thank you both for joining us. Christina Kino there from our markets team, uh, staying with us as well. Anna Stubnitska, global macroeconomist at Fidelity International. Coming up, China's export growth slows more than expected amid weakening global demand and COVID lockdown, while Beijing makes a strong yuan intervention. Well, we'll have plenty more on that shortly. This is Bloomberg. Economics, finance, politics. This is Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition. I'm Francine Lacroix right here in London. Now, China's exports growth slowed more than expected in August. That's as global demand weakened and COVID lockdowns disrupted manufacturing production. Now, continuing lockdowns and staggering growth weighed down domestic demand and import growth. Meanwhile, Beijing has made a push to curb the yuan's weakness by fixing the currency at its strongest bias on record. Well, still with us, Anna Stubnitska, global macro strategist, or macroeconomist, rather, at Fidelity International, and Christina Kino from our MLive team. So thank you both for joining us. Anna, how worried are you about the Chinese economy right now? I think um, we have seen this story through the year. Um, we uh, thought that maybe we could get a growth rebound in the second half of the year, uh, but uh, the, the, the government is sticking to the COVID restrictions. So I think uh, this is just another shock hitting the global economy. And of course, from the China perspective, it, it's, it's not surprising that growth is so weak because there is no consumption engine to drive growth. And also you have the slowdown in the rest of the world. Um, and so you cannot grow uh, just based on your exports. Um, again, I think it's a balance. Uh, uh, we don't want to see uh, the unraveling of the pro property sector, for example, and serious financial instability. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we are likely to see um, you know, big, big stimulus there as well. So um, uh, I think th this growth is likely to remain slow until something turns. So whether, either the pickup in the rest of the world or uh, potentially removal of the COVID restrictions, and then the economy can, can start going again. Yeah, and uh, Christine, what does that mean for Remnimbi? Well, the yuan is really struggling, and it is struggling to the extent that it is now uh, something that authorities are really pushing back against in a big way, right? It really has been a while since we've seen this consistent pushback against a weaker yuan with a stronger fixing for several sessions now. And, you know, that really tells you a lot about the Chinese authorities' tolerance for just how weak they're going to let the currency go, but also how they're thinking about managing the economy as a whole, because it's not just the yuan policy 
policy. That's one side of monetary policy that they're using as a lever. The other side, of course, is the support that we've heard about. Uh, and and the, the, the central bank just providing more support for the economy, which is quite a turn from, you know, the deleveraging buzzword that we've seen out of China toward the end of last year, early of this year. But I think, yeah, it's really this kind of demand destruction as a result yeah. of these COVID lockdowns are taking yeah. over, taking precedence over everything else. A hundred percent. And actually, I'm getting quite a lot of questions from viewers and saying, look, what does this mean for the animal spirits even longer term? Anna, do you see a reversal of some of those policies? Um, COVID-specific policies. Um, yes, uh, in China. Yeah, yeah, well, I think it's likely, you know, we've been uh, uh, trying to, uh, to to predict the timing, but it's really impossible. You know, some experts are saying uh, it might happen after the, the important meeting, I think, which is now on the 16th of October. Um, so we'll be looking, we'll be looking to that. But I think this is really the key to, to unlocking that, that growth rebound from here. Yeah, and Christine, what does this all mean for the, you know the rest of the emerging markets? Uh, not great things. <laughs> um, I mean, because it is really getting caught in between uh, a rock and a hard place. Essentially, you know, it is the dollar strength on the one hand, which is very much squeezing the economies of a lot of emerging markets, and then on the other hand, uh, the world's second largest economy really in dire straits. And a lot of these economies in emerging markets very much levered to strength in China and the domestic strength there. And so, if that has taken away, is and, and then on the other kind of we have dollar strength it really is quite a tough time for a lot of emerging markets at this point all right thank you both for joining us Anna Stupnitska there global macroeconomist at Fidelity International and our Christina Kino from our markets team now let's get straight to the Bloomberg first word news here's Danny Berger hi Danny hi Francine here in the UK new Prime Minister Liz Truss has announced who shall fill the top job in her cabinet and for the first time ever the so-called four great offices of state aren't held by white men. Kwasi Kwarteng is Britain's first black chancellor of the Exchequer. James Cleverly is foreign secretary, secretary rather, and Suella Braverman is home secretary. The U.S. says Russia is turning to North Korea for weapons to use against its war against Ukraine. Officials say Russia wants to buy millions of rockets and artillery shells from the impoverished nation. The State Department says it's the latest sign that Russia is continuing to suffer from severe supply shortages due in part to export controls and sanctions. The latest on former President Donald Trump's legal woes and The Washington Post is reporting that material on the nuclear capabilities of a foreign government were found by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago. It says some of the documents were so top secret that even senior national security officials are kept in the dark about them. And a new poll by Gallup says about half of U.S. workers could be described as quiet quitters. That means they fulfill their job descriptions but are psychologically detached from their work. The study found that the share of people actively engaged with their work was 32 percent. Those who were disengaged rose to 18 percent. A big drop in engagement has come from Gen Z and younger millennials. Global News 24 hours a day on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. This is Bloomberg. Francine. Danielle, I still have so many questions about quiet quitting. I mean, does it mean not putting in a double shift? I don't, I don't get it. I feel like it's just not working extra, which to me seems like doing your job. 
So I don't know. I don't really understand Francine. I know. We'll go on TikTok <laughs> and maybe discuss this further Perfect. because we're, you know, Gen Z. Thank you so much. Our Danny Brewer there with the very latest news. Now, coming up, Bitcoin continues to struggle, but Pantera Capital's chief executive officer says the digital currency is on to the next leg of a rally. We get that interview later. And this is Bloomberg. I think blockchain can easily decouple from this kind of risk on risk off mentality that people have had. And in a year's time, even if the main markets are struggling, bonds, real estate, equities, I can see crypto, you know, marching to its own drummer and hitting all time highs. We have seen um, big leverage in terms of, you know, the open interest in the perpetual swap contracts compared to the amount of Bitcoin out there. It looks like the market's preparing for a lift. What do you see in terms of the price? Oh, I, I agree. You know, we've been doing this for 10 years and we've been through three big uh, bear market cycles. And on average, they lasted 220 days. And that's basically what we just had. Uh, so I actually think we hit the lows in June that we'll see, and then we're on to the next uh, bull market. And hey, you know, it might be rocky and might take a while to get going, but I think that uh, we're on to the next leg of a rally. And where will that bring us to, Dan? What's your target for year end and then five years out? We, uh, Bitcoin as a proxy for our industry has averaged 2.5x a year for 11 years. So that's always kind of my standard forecast is that it'll probably keep going uh, at that same growth rate for a while. But it is really important to remember Bitcoin's no longer everything. There was a time Bitcoin was 100% of the market. And then for a while, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum were essentially everything. Mm. Now there are many, many really important projects. And, and you've seen uh bitcoin you know rally a bit but the the real story is projects other than bitcoin and ethereum are rallying more well let's talk about ethereum because as matt and i both mentioned already we're getting closer and closer to the merge it seems like there is a lot of hype a lot of optimism what is your read on the actual impact it will have yeah it's been our belief that as soon as they actually set a date for the merge then ethereum would outperform and that's actually happened and I think once we get through next week and it goes through and, you know, God willing, it does work, <laughs> uh, it should explode. And so we've been, you know, much more excited about Ethereum in the last month or two uh, than Bitcoin. And you've seen Bitcoin share of the market has, has drifted down to 38% and Ethereum's now worth a bit more than half the total market cap of Bitcoin. Dan, love to get your take on state. The Pantera Capital Chief Executive Officer there and Co-Chief Investment Officer Dan Moorhead. Coming up, Germany headed for a recession on the back of soaring energy prices. That's according to the Deutsche Bank Chief Executive Christian Saving. We discuss that next. This is Bloomberg.
Day one at number 10, the new Prime Minister Liz Truss names her cabinet and pledges action this week on soaring energy bills. Record fix, China signals mounting discomfort with yuan weakness setting its reference rate with the strongest bias ever. The yen sell-off accelerates. Plus, bears in control, stocks slide along with commodities as fears of aggressive Fed tightening world risk sentiment. The dollar hits another all-time high. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition. I'm Francine Lacqua here in London. Straight to what we're seeing from industries across the board, sectors all under pressure. If you look at the 19 groups that make up the stock 600, they're all down. The picture is one of concern, not necessarily because of recession, but of course because of inflation and the fact that dollar is ever higher. So stocks and commodities dropping, the prospect of aggressive Federal Reserve monetary tightening lifted the dollar to another records uh, that was stoked of course by higher treasury yields and worries about the economic outlook and that's rippling across the world leading to tighter fin financial conditions that could further undermine risk assets now traders beginning to doubt that the european central bank will deliver its biggest rate hike in more than 20 years this week amid mounting concerns about the health of the region's economy speaking today in frankfurt the deutsche bank chief executive christian saving said that germany is headed for a recession. Well, joining us now is Michael March. He is partner and co-head of global credit finance at Goldman Sachs. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. So what are you seeing from what clients are telling you? Are they worried about the next 12 months? Morning, Francine. Thanks for having me. Um, I think it depends on your vantage point. So if you're a global corporate um, with access to people, energy, a diversified uh, business, then um, you, you're certainly concerned, but I think you feel very differently than if you're domestic um, uh, manufacturer, for example, in, in Europe, relying on highly disrupted energy supply. You asked me what, what are on our clients' minds. I think we saw uh, a few weeks ago um, some belief that the, the, the Fed could potentially be a little bit more dovish in its approach and so potential pivot on a go forward basis um, and some some green shoots coming through looking at certain CPI reports that meant uh, people were getting perhaps more comfortable that a recession could be avoided. I think in the last few weeks yeah. that's changed. Uh, certainly the Fed's approach or its commentary coming out of Jackson Hole uh, gave people um, much more certainty that the Fed wasn't having this uh, potential dovish uh, pivot and uh, a little bit more of concern given the action in the energy markets that a recession could be. Um, more near term. So look, real mix of emotions so Mike, and attitudes. Yeah. So what does this mean for finance overall? I know if we're going into a higher interest rate environment, we certainly are, then that's a good thing. I don't know whether it translates into more IPOs and what that means for credit finance. Look at the credit market specifically. I think there are, there are two factors the credit markets focus on um, incessantly, one of which is a risk-free rate. So are rates steady? Are they moving? Um, it feels that we're getting closer to a position where rates will um, will be in, in a more range bound, and that'll be a good thing. We'll start to see investors then feeling they can price risk. And secondly, how about recessionary pressures? Recessionary pressures put um, an increase or put pressure on default rates, and that of course is pretty pretty bad for fixed income products. So I think if those two levers start to to just slow down, or those two uh, elements of volatility slow down, then. 
I think we could see uh, a much more vibrant financing market. The one, the one thing the financing market has for it right now is low issuance. So the demand for yeah. cash is down both in the equity and, and credit markets, away from investment grade corporates. Um, I think the, uh, that lack of supply is giving investors the ability to sit and hold cash and not have to make an yeah. you know, investment decision right now. Michael, what does it feel like sitting in London? So we also have a new prime minister. We're, you know, going to have possibly new regulation. We know that the focus will be on the city of London. What does that mean for, for you? Apart from the glorious summer weather, the city of London, a lot of uncertainty. I think, um, you know, with the change in leadership, uh, it's very disruptive. And so people will take some time to, to figure out what the the new cabinet appointments will mean, um, policy will mean for the economy. But certainly right now, looking at, uh, you know, today, today, it feels deeply uncertain. Um, I don't think that's particularly different, though, when I look around the world. Maybe it uh, feels a little bit more comfortable in the U.S. where their inflation seems to be under bit of control. Um, but it feels like a bit of a wait and see um, right now. It's good we've gotten the uh, effectively leadership election through. That shows some stability. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see the next few weeks. Michael, do you see a lot of clients actually saying they're just going to sit this out? I know we talk about animal spirits. I don't know whether it's appropriate to talk about animal spirits given the crazy inflation and the potential awful downturn that we'll see. But, you know, what will give people confidence? Again, I think it depends on your vantage point. I think if you're sitting in, um, let's talk about the alternative space uh, with locked up capital um, and you're not necessarily uh, driven by uh, daily mark to market pressures, I actually think there's some really interesting opportunities for that world right now. And I think they are looking for bargains, for opportunities to deploy capital. And so I think the, um, uh, that part of the investing world is, uh, is feeling differently to those who are seeing outflows, um, who perhaps have funds under management that have been under pressure. Um, and so I think it depends on your vantage point. I, 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 it would be remiss of me not to say that the you know, day-to-day the, the -day feels pretty uncertain given the recent moves in energy um, and, uh, and the continued volatility in rates. But for now, I think it really is depending on your vantage point, just depending on your attitude. I, I know you had a big conference really to talk about this. It was, you know, the, the Goldman Sachs Investment uh, Bank Conference. I believe it was yesterday, Michael. Were you surprised yes. about the, the pessimism or optimism in the room? So we had 90 uh, corporates coming through our offices uh, in London and a thousand investors. What was interesting, uh, when you hear the generally speaking, because it was a broad uh, group represented, uh, corporates are actually in pretty good shape. Um, their leverage uh, level, I would say, is at all-time low. When you track uh, leverage as a financial metric across Europe, it's at decades low. And so I'd say they feel comfortable with the balance sheet risk. And actually spot, when you look at the last quarter and prior quarters of trading, uh, a lot of the noise around supply chain has come down. So corporates, whilst they feel nervous on a go-forward basis and conserving cash, actually felt, I would say, pretty good, um, surprise on the upside. From an investing standpoint, having come off a few weeks of um, you know, equity volatility and um, certainly in credit spread widening, I think that was a bit more of a, a sanguine uh, mindset. But like anything in life, when you put that group together, it's a real can-do approach. And so what you tended to find was even the more bearish investors were finding areas that they found interesting to invest in. So I would say it was a very constructive feeling, um, but people were, were definitely looking forward to seeing how September, October played out at various different levels. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, one of the things that we're trying to figure out, of course, second round effects, you know, companies going under, Michael, some of the worries uh, because of energy, cost of living, but also increased interest rates. If the time frame is uncertain, how long does all of, you know, the, the second and third round effects of this, um, how long does it take for it to come through? So look, a lot, of, a lot of this will be depending on the consumer. Uh, so we're talking about a, a winter season coming through. So the energy bills for a lot of consumers will really be tested. And so that consumer impact feels like it's a Q4, Q1 impact next year. And so I think a lot of corporates are looking um, at that. Um, from a corporate standpoint, look, as I, as I mentioned, it does feel like uh, a lot of the European corporates are in root health. Um, you know, they have high cash balances, near-term maturities, balance sheets even in, in good further. I think that feels, again, like it's going into next year for clarity on how people feel. Um, and look, from a rate standpoint, I think we, um, we're in a much better place than we were at the beginning of the year in terms of where terminal rates are likely to head or where people feel they are. And for now, it's certainly, um, it feels like how, how energy is going to perform, what government action may be taken around the world to try and help or stave off the impacts of high energy prices. And of course, we have a Russia-Ukraine um, as a conflict ongoing, and that, that could be a question yeah. that remains outstanding for some time. Michael, thanks so much. Michael Marsh, their partner and co-head of global credit finance at Goldman Sachs. Now, coming up, we speak to Eric Collins, chief executive of ImpactX, on his new book and his 10-step guide to transformative entrepreneurship for underrepresented people. This is Bloomberg. Finance politics. This is Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition on Francine Lacqua here in London. Now let's get straight to your Bloomberg Business Flash. Here's Danny Berger. Hi, Danny. Hi, Francine. Tencent is set to more than double its stake in Ubisoft, buying nearly 50% of the holding company of the founding Guillemot brothers. The move gives the brothers the capital to get the company back on track while retaining control. Governance at Ubisoft will remain unchanged, and Tencent won't have any operational veto rights. Abu Dhabi's sovereign wealth fund Mubadala is said to be nearing a deal to buy Fortress Investment from SoftBank. We're told the deal could value the U.S. asset manager at more than $2 billion. Mubadala has long been a partner for SoftBank. In 2017, it was one of the anchor investors in the first vision fund. Bank of America is planning updated return to office policies. That's to formalize some of the new flexibility the bank has given its workers during the pandemic. CEO Brian Moynihan told an industry conference the plans will be based on feedback the company has received from staff surveys and the rules will be specific to each business unit. Spanish oil and gas giant Repsol is selling a quarter of its exploration and production division for $3.4 billion. It's a dramatic downsizing of its exposure to fossil fuels. The deal with a U.S. private equity firm is Repsol's second divestment in recent months. The oil producer is looking to raise funds to pay for low emissions projects. And that's your Bloomberg Business Flash, Francine. Danny, thanks so much. Now, it's complicated time to be a black entrepreneur. Some black founders in recent years have created formidable startups with towering valuations. But there are still shockingly few large VC-backed startups with black leaders. Where Eric Collins, founder of ImpactX, 
argues in his new book that investing in black and underrepresented entrepreneurs in order to create successful businesses is the fastest socioeconomic game changer there is. Well, joining us now is Eric Collins, the chief executive officer of ImpactX. He was also on the committee for a small business administration council on underserved communities under the Obama administration. Eric, great to speak to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on the book. I can't believe we still have to write this in 2022. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Francine. But yes, in 2022, it is strange. But if you look at the UK, for instance, one in two black children live below the poverty line. One of the things that we're talking about in this book is if you want to have social justice, you need to have the means to make social justice a priority in every agenda, business agendas, governmental agendas around the world. And business is the fastest way in building large scale businesses. Because if you think of things like Amazon, you think of things like Tesla, those individuals who started those organizations have an inordinate impact upon post policy as well as upon practice in many parts of the world. And we'd like to see some black women, some white women, some some people of color involved in those conversations. So I know there's no quick fix, but yeah. is it up to banks right now to just give more lending, to give more support to founders? It's up to everyone who's an asset allocator, uh, Francine. When you think about it, the way that most of these large-scale businesses that we're talking about, sometimes called the FANG, which is Facebook, um, Apple, a Amazon, etc., those companies started through venture funding. So there was a third party who said, we believe, and often an institutional third party that said, we believe in this idea, we believe in this founding team. That does not happen for women and people of color. Great for banks to lend more and for banks to be able to do things, but if banks are relying on the criteria that are associated with, we are going to right. lend based on your income and how many assets you have. In the UK, again, only 30% of black families own their own home. And again, one in two black children lives in poverty. Where does all this capital come from that allows you, therefore, to get the means in order to be able to start the business? But, sir, so, so what's the right way? And again, if you speak to any chief executive that Absolutely. will come on here from banks, they'll say, well, we're doing. We have a fund dedicated to minorities trying to start up their businesses. Mm -hmm. When you look at the numbers, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's hardly there. Correct. And I think you've said exactly, you, you know, you, you get from me a big amen, Francine, that in fact, what we are talking about is very small amounts of capital that are being allocated because somehow this is considered a more risky outcome that you won't necessarily be able to get the returns that you would if you're investing in the traditional group which is young white men if you think about inefficiencies in the market which is exactly what we as investors want to think about in places where we can get an inordinate amount of alpha those are places where other people don't find and spend their time they don't find the hidden gems we know that investing in women, investing in diverse teams, investing in people of color actually delivers a huge amount of alpha. So what these asset allocators need to do is to mandate. They need to say to the fund managers in whom they entrust their money, my pension fund, your pension fund, my insurance policy, your insurance policy, we deserve to have that used to advance communities and conversations, yeah. missions and mandates that we think are important. Are we having those conversations? And if COVID mm -hmm. took, you know, means that some of these initiatives took a backstab, what are we going to see with the cost of living crisis? Oh, what we saw with COVID, what we see with the cost of living crisis, what we see in the Ukraine and Russia, the attention of the news cycle turns and people find themselves saying, look, there's something that's much more important than this. And this is why we have to build black businesses and women-led businesses where the attention will consistently stay. Asset allocators can be an ally, 
but allies, they're great allies, they're good allies, and they're poor allies. We have to make sure that they stick with us yeah. along the path. And I do believe it really starts with boardrooms at the asset allocators, boardrooms in terms of the banks. I know, but we, and I think we, we talked about this last time you came. Boardrooms is fine, but if you're not the ultimate decision maker, mm -hmm. it's representation without any power. Oh, that's a good point. And I do believe, though, that the mandates that are driven by boards who then review the leaders of organizations, the executive and management team, and set the tone, I think that's important. I also think the C-suite should be occupied by women and people of color. Please, don't hear me saying it's just mm -hmm. the board. I want to see that trickle down. I don't believe that we can only use a grassroots approach and go from the bottom up. I think we have to but start from the top down is also. It, is it changing? So is there any glimmer of hope? I know it's, it feels glacial, mm -hmm. but are, are there pockets where you say, actually, th this is really advancing? Impact X, you know, yeah. my organization has seen glimmers of hope in the insure tech company and the fintech organizations. We've seen that. We've seen lots of glimmers of hope. What we also are finding is that in terms of diversity initiatives, there are huge advances. If you look at 2010 versus 2022, white women have occupy, occupied many more board seats, in some places up to 40% where they were down at like 10 and 15% 10 years ago. That has not translated to black women and black men and other minorities, but that is a focus. We know that it can be done with the will. It can be done. So it's not as though this is inordinately difficult or something which is alien to our species. We have a new prime minister here in the UK. Mm -hmm. We're expecting to find out what her policies will be, what she'll put in place. Are you hopeful that you know some of that will go to more diverse communities? I am very hopeful that at number 10, what we can find, as we have seen in the United States, that when you have a new head of state, that new head of state has an opportunity to set a tone. And if that individual decides to set a tone which actually emphasizes some of the issues that are associated yeah. with women and people of color, that quite frankly we can see huge impacts on the economy. In the UK, for instance, 75 billion pounds a year is estimated to be lost by underinvestment in black companies. In the United States, that's one trillion pounds a year that are taken away from GDP. That's a solution to a lot of problems by actually investing, getting those numbers up in terms of the black businesses, making them larger scale and able to contribute as they can. And hopefully the new prime minister will see that and make an emphasis black business and black empowerment. So I, I think we have the most diverse cabinet in the UK in mm -hmm. its history and we have for the first time a black chancellor. Does that make a difference? Oh, I think who's in charge symbolically can always make a difference. We want to make sure that those people then follow through and what we hope is their underlying ethos and their values, that they follow their values. And one of those is equitable social justice. So I'm hopeful that what we will see is something a little bit different. I was always very interested in the past administration, how few black people were in the administration, lots of people of color, but few black people and um, a number of powerful women. I'd like to see that the table increased in scope and the number of people who are sitting at that table actually increased. What are you seeing in the U.S.? I mean, the, the U.S., when you read about it, certainly from here, there's so much division on every kind of politics. Mm -hmm. Does that make it much more difficult for the money to, to reach the right people? The interesting thing about the United States is you have so you have almost a shadow system which is available for um, black people and women of, and women. 
That has existed since the time of segregation, slavery, segregation, and moving on. In the book, We Don't Need Permission, I talk about this, actually. So there's been this ability to actually function. Motown is an example. Everyone knows Motown. It's an example of an organization that started to serve a principally black community and then was able to open up and become something that influenced the world. Here in the UK, we don't necessarily have those institutions. We don't necessarily have the numbers which allow us to have a very robust economic system that is for black people, like FUBU, for us, by us. In the United States, I am noticing that there is more and more capital. There are organizations like ImpactX, there are hundreds of them in the, U yeah. in the United States, whereas here in the UK and in Europe, there are very few of us, which means what we do is very important and has an inordinate impact in terms of setting an agenda, setting a target, and then also proving the thesis that you can get fantastic returns when you invest in women and people of color. Eric, as you know, if you're an investor, or actually if you're a saver and you want to invest your money, what's the right way, if you care about this, if you want to make a difference but you don't know how, what's the best piece of concrete advice you can give? Such a good piece, uh, such a good question. What I would say, Francine, is that you have a pension. Most people who, have, who, are, on, who are watching this, who are small savers, have a pension. Yeah. Make sure that you say to the people with whom you have your pension that I want to make sure that you are backing the things that I back because they do back other organizations. They are principal investors in fund managers. They're asset allocators. Do that with every asset allocator. Write a note to the chair of the board. Write a note to the CEO. Say to uh, Allison Rose at NatWest where your money is held, I want to make sure that you have programs that are helping people like me. What are you doing? And hold them to account. But Eric, the problem is that, again, they can be token, right? Token programs. So is it, do, do we need a, a more transparent set of data to understand who's behind it, how much they're investing? How do you measure progress? Oh, I think that that would be sensational if we can wait for the data. But I find often that we hide behind the data. I think the results are the results and are very easily seen. In 2018, one in two black children in the UK were living below the poverty line, where one in five of their, of their peers who are white are living below the poverty line. That is a fact. There's no reason to look back at that particular fact. How are we going to solve the problem? We've tried a number of things. We've tried marching, we've tried suing, we've tried begging, we've tried voting. What we need to actually do is start some businesses and then force the issue through the economic um, channels that we sometimes don't use fully. That's what I'm recommending, and that's what this book recommends. Eric, thank you so much, as always, for coming on. Eric Collins, their chief executive at ImpactX, with a very, very impactful book, How Black Business Can Change Our World. Now, coming up, we'll talk more, of course, about diversity in the UK. Liz Truss also promising a major package of support to tackle soaring energy bills. Economists think Truss's package to rein in soaring prices will have a sweeping impact on the UK economy. More from the new Prime Minister next. This is Bloomberg. We need to build roads, homes and broadband faster. We need more investment and great jobs in every town and city across our country. We need to reduce the burden on families and help people get on in life. I know that we have what it takes to tackle those challenges.
I have a bold plan to grow the economy through tax cuts and reform. I will cut taxes to reward hard work and boost business-led growth and investment. I will drive reform in my mission to get the United Kingdom working, building and growing. I will deal hands-on with the energy crisis caused by Putin's war. I will take action this week to deal with energy bills and to secure our future energy supply. Liz Truss, there are promising a major package of support this week to tackle soaring UK energy bills in her first national address as Prime Minister. Well, Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition continues in the next hour. Matt Miller, Kay Lines in New York and Edwards here in London. And this is Bloomberg. Panic is one of the, the biggest risks to investors right now. We've been a little shocked at how much inertia there's been this year for asset allocation. Flexible exchange rates are playing their intended role of being uh, shock absorbers. Right now, the, the dollar strength is, is as much a good thing as it is a bad thing. The simple thing that foreign exchange is, uh, is signaling right now is that the U.S. economy is faring better than the rest of the world. This is Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition with Anna Edwards, Matt Miller and Kaylee Lines. It's 10 a.m. in London, 5 a.m. in New York and 5 p.m. in Hong Kong. Our top stories today. A record run for the dollar. One measure of the greenback reaches an all-time high as the bond market bets on aggressive Federal Reserve tightening. Liz Truss takes centre stage. The new British Prime Minister holds her first cabinet meeting with action on soaring energy bills in focus. This hour, Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey testifies to Parliament. And Apple in the spotlight. It's set to unveil the iPhone 14 lineup, a new slate of smartwatches and new AirPods. Welcome to Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition. I'm Anna Edwards in London with Matt Miller and Kaylee Lyons over in New York. And Kaylee, the Asian session under pressure, European uh, equity markets and risk assets recovering a little bit of their poise along with US futures. But Asia very focused on the headwinds. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pretty brutal day for risk assets in Asia overnight. The MSCI Asia Pacific Index as a whole fell more than 1% to its lowest level since May of 2020. And usually that pain in the equity market would be a bigger story, but really it's more about foreign exchange today and the fact that the dollar is stronger against literally every Asian currency, including the Chinese yuan, which is trading right at 699, very close to that seven level. And the PBOC very clearly is getting uncomfortable with that yuan weakness, setting the strongest ever reference rate overnight. Really, they're trying to shore up support for the currency, and yet it is still weaker against the dollar. Part of that may have to do with the weaker export data we got for August out overnight as well. And then the Japanese yen, really the one that takes my attention this morning, at a 144 handle. That is something we have not seen going all the way back until August of 1998, when we know that intervention was required. And we've gotten verbal intervention from Japanese policymakers, and yet no real intervention. And the Bank of Japan still sticking with its yield curve control. In the face of that weaker yen, they still 
boosted their bond buying overnight, really trying to keep that 25 basis point cap on the 10-year JGB yield, which is just above it now. The question, Matt, is if you continue to see this dollar strength and yen weakness, how long is the BOJ going to be able to keep that up? Well, they have to until they can't, right? Take a look at the uh, Bloomberg dollar index here. I've got it slotted in number three, but certainly it's the most important asset to be watching because this is the third day in a row where it's reached an all-time high. The Bloomberg dollar index is a trade-weighted average against, I think, about 14 other currencies. So um, it's really broadly measured and shows the incredible strength that we've seen. The S&P futures right now are up a little bit. We've seen a lot of turnarounds lately. We saw that again yesterday, closing down at the end of the session. The 10-year yield rising to 331.49. And if you look at real yields, we're up at the highest level that we've seen since before the pandemic. So really soaring yields if you uh, take out inflation. Bitcoin right now down about 1%, but that is to be expected. With such a huge climb in the dollar, almost all currencies are down against the greenback. And if you measure Bitcoin in dollars, it's trading right now at 18,800. Anna, what do you see in Europe? Yeah, we see a slightly better picture than we had a couple of hours ago, Matt, but not a firm footing for European risk assets. European stocks then looking pretty negative, as you can see right here. The CAC and the DAX in particular showing some weakness in France and in Germany. And that hasn't really been changed by the, the, the news just breaking in the last few minutes that the euro area second quarter GDP came in on the final reading at 0.8% growth. That was against a previous estimate of 0.6%. So better than expected, but that does not change the headwinds that Europe is facing uh, for the winter when things could get very cold. Thinking of energy supplies, we're seeing a bit of an uptick in Brent crude right now. Some comments from President Putin in Russia talking about how Russia will not supply, in his words, oil and gas and fuel if we see price caps imposed. That's that's the red that's the sort of the headline across the Bloomberg terminal. We'll see what uh, what develops from that. But this is Brent crude 93.24 ticking up a little bit as a result of that. Previously, we saw energy prices moving lower with the broader commodity space that had been weighing on the London market certainly as energy stocks and basic resource stocks came under pressure. Talking of energy, this is the Uniper share price, the energy supplier uh, so much talked about over in Germany. It's had a bailout, of course, from the German government. Well, now it sees two downgrades from two analysts, and as a result. The stock goes even further into the red. The UK two-year yield is interesting. Yesterday, we saw that steepening of the curve as the market was reassessing what it would mean if we saw a near £200 billion injection fiscally into the, uh, into the economy in the shape of caps on some of those energy prices. Uh, well, now the market does seem to have the appetite to buy gilts today, which is an interesting development. Ubisoft Entertainment also in focus, uh, down by 15% today. We've seen Tencent, which is, uh, of course, a big Chinese games maker, and this is a French games maker. Tencent talking about increasing their stake here uh, and possibly leaving the window open. M&A within this sector is a really interesting topic, isn't it, Kaylee? after we saw Microsoft and uh, Activision Blizzard very much in focus. Absolutely. So, Anna, clearly already it's a very busy day, and there is still much more ahead on this Wednesday, including happening right now, Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey speaking before the UK Parliament Treasury Committee. And later today, Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, will face Labour leader Keir Starmer in her first PMQs since being appointed. Then Apple is expected to unveil the iPhone 14 and its next slate of smartwatches at a launch event. Alex Webb will bring us the details on that shortly. 
GameStop will be reporting uh, uh, earnings uh, among other companies today. It'll be interesting to actually get some fundamentals from that meme stock company. And finally, the Fed is releasing its beige book of regional economic activity at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Plus, throughout the day, we'll be hearing from Fed officials, including Michael Barr, Lael Brainerd, and Loretta Mester, Matt. Wow, so a lot going on today. But, of course, the strong dollar is um, one of the big headlines that we're watching. Steamrolling Asian currencies, putting the Japanese yen on track for its worst year on record, as Kaylee was just highlighting. We spoke with strategist Chris Wood of Jefferies earlier about where he thinks the dollar is headed. So long as U.S. bond, bond, US bond yields are rising, which they are right now, and if the BOJ is trying to maintain this 10 uh 25 basis point target on the 10-year JGB, the yen's going to keep going down. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Christine Aquino to talk about um, the dollar strength and what it means for other assets. Christine, what are you seeing? Well, Matt, really what we're seeing today is a lot of pain being inflicted upon all the other countries apart from the U.S. dollar, essentially. I mean, that is very much clear what we're seeing both in the Chinese yuan and the Japanese yen. And it really comes at a time when these countries, of course, Japan is a net energy importer, so having a really weak currency, not such a great thing for them, despite that theoretical export windfall. And then, of course, on the case, in the case of China, very much speaks to the domestic economic weakness and deterioration that we really have seen over the last few months. And it's really difficult to see then, given that these are, you know, some of the world's biggest economies really struggling in their own right. What will stop the dollar in its tracks? Because this is what it's kind of facing at the moment. It really is standing out as uh, the, the lone uh, stronghold in uh, the world economy at the moment. Yeah, absolutely, Christine. So we've got the dollar on the rise still the yen we talked about the chinese currency you talked about in passing there but let's dwell on that china setting its yuan fix at the strongest bias on record as losses mount there increasingly concern i suppose in china about the the downward pressure then on the currency Absolutely, Anna. And I think it really speaks as well to China's strategy here at the moment, right? Because, of course, uh, one thing uh, when it comes to the currency policy and what they're trying to do there, which is shore up, of course, Yuan's strength. But then on the other hand, they have, of course, uh, pledged support for the economy as well, the monetary authority, because we are still continu seeing continued weakness in the economy as a result of the various lockdowns and just the, the demand destruction. So you really, China is trying to kind of have it both ways here but then the problem is that how much is it going to take for the authorities how much more are they going to have to do because at the moment it seems like maybe they're holding down the line but you know it, it's always once you start deploying that support for the economy it's kind of a, a spiral where you're going to have to deploy more support to keep the economy propped up can you have your cake and eat it too? Bloomberg's Christina Kino, thank you so much. Now, we're also keeping an eye in foreign exchange on the British pound as Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey and his colleagues are testifying to Parliament today about their economic outlook. Investors are currently betting that the Bank of England will raise rates to 4.5% or more by the middle of next year. Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden joins us now for more from Westminster. Lizzie, what are we expecting to hear from the Treasury Select Committee today? Well, Kaylee, they're going to start speaking any minute now, and it will be a blockbuster session because now we know Liz Truss is the Prime Minister, so we want to get 
Bailey and his colleagues take on trustonomics, at the heart of which, of course, is her uh, blaming the Bank of England for letting inflation get out of control and wanting to review the BOE's mandate. So you can expect Bailey and his colleagues to staunchly defend the bank's independence. Uh, but it'll also be interesting to get their take on her energy plans. Documents seen by Bloomberg suggest she's going to spend 170 to 200 billion pounds on helping consumers and businesses through this energy crisis. Uh, our economists at Bloomberg Economics suggest that means inflation's already peaked and a recession can be avoided. So what does that mean for interest rates? Our economists say that 75 basis points isn't looking likely in September. But Catherine Mann this week said that, well, she didn't rule it out. Uh, so, but then our economists say that if the economy overheats because of these energy plans, then the rates could stay higher for longer. So we'll be looking out for lots of hints on the future path for rates. Okay, the future of the Bank of England, the path to rates all in focus. Meanwhile, back to the openly political uh, Lizzie, and we see Liz Truss, of course, putting together her top team. What does the composition of that top team uh, tell us and, 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 and about her approach from here? Well, it's been very diverse, this cabinet, and she is, of course, Britain's third female prime minister, and she's not selected a single white male for the top position. She's got a first black chancellor in Britain, Kwasi Kwarteng. Suella Braverman goes to Home Secretary, and uh, James Cleverley is the Foreign Secretary. But what it shows about her is that she's chosen the loyalists. Uh, all the enemies are on the back benches. She's not taken heed of LBJ's advice about a tent. Uh, but also, she hasn't taken advice from Boris Johnson, uh, who learned what happens when you displease the Parliamentary Conservative Party. But perhaps she wants to reward loyalty because it served her so well in the leadership contest against Rishi Sunak, staying close to Boris Johnson till the end. All right, Lizzie, thanks very much. Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden there reporting from Westminster. Now, uh, Liz Truss spoke with President Biden over the phone yesterday in a conversation that will set the tone for the future working relationship of the two allies that have historically been close but do not always see eye to eye. Anne-Marie Horner, Bloomberg Washington correspondent, joins us from D.C. for more. Anne-Marie? Well, Matt, the two discuss how they can increase global cooperation on a number of fronts, including China, Iran, things like securing energy, sustainable and affordable energy, which we do know the U.K. government's going to make a big announcement about this week. The two also discuss, which is something very close to the president, given the fact that he really talks about his Irish-American roots and background, is the fact that they talked about uh, the shared commitment to protecting the gains of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and the importance of reaching a negotiated agreement with the European Union on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, why this is important is because this could show some friction of this quote-unquote special relationship between Washington and London. We know that President Biden was against the U.K. leaving the EU. We know that Liz Truss was at first anti-Brexit, then became one of its staunchest supporters. And what the worry is, of course, for the president, is that there could be any U.K. government policy that can undermine that agreement. Uh, we'll see what happens next in terms of these two leaders. We do that the U.K. has been really pushing for 
a free trade agreement. That was supposed to be one of these big pieces of the pie of Brexit that we rarely hear them talk about now. And uh, according to people familiar, we do know that the U.K. government is trying to set up a meeting with the president uh, when they meet at the U.N. General Assembly later this month. All right, Anne-Marie, thanks very much. Anne-Marie Horder in there talking to us from Washington, D.C. Now let's turn to corporate, corporate news. Apple's biggest event of the year is today. The company is set to unveil the iPhone 14, also a fresh slate of smartwatches and new AirPods. Joining us now for more on what to expect is Alex Webb of Bloomberg Quick Take. So, Alex, what are we expecting? What are the highlights? Well, the events had the invitation headline far out and there's a suspicion that might allude to some satellite communications for emergency situations on iPhone but a lot of this is based on the reporting of our colleague Mark Gurman and he's expecting uh, four new iPhones, two Pro versions, two standard versions. As you might expect with any new iPhone generation there'll be faster processors, better cameras and also a smaller notch. That's the little space at the top of your iPhone display where, which houses the camera. Perhaps more significantly is the introduction of a new line of Apple Watches, the Apple Watch Pro potentially named. And the reason that's significant is because while Apple owns about 36, controls about 36% of the smart watch market, it is Garmin that dominates the space above $500. So Apple is really coming after Garmin with a watch that is going to be targeted at people who do a lot of exercise, climbing, cycling, all that sort of thing. And it's expected to be priced close to $1,000. All right. Well, we'll look forward for more from that event. Alex Webb of Bloomberg Quick Take, thank you so much. And we'll have more on Apple's event later on this hour with Ramon Lamas, Research Director with IDC's Devices and Displays team. Meanwhile, another company story we're watching this morning, United Airlines is threatening to suspend service at New York's JFK Airport unless federal regulators review runway use and allow the carrier to increase daily operations. United says the airport's total flight capacity hasn't changed since 2008, despite a widening of one runways and other infrastructure improvements and that it would suspend operations at the end of October without more slots. As for how that's translating into performance for United Airlines shares in early hours this morning, doing nothing. They are literally unchanged, but this is definitely a stock to keep an eye on throughout the day today. Another one to keep an eye on is one moving on the back of an analyst recommendation. Wolf Research upgrading Pinterest to outperform with a $28 price target. That would be about 27% upside from where I closed yesterday. This morning it's trading at 2271 up the better part of 3%. Plunging to the downside, though, UiPath. This is that application software company. It gave a weaker-than-expected revenue forecast, citing macro headwinds and, wait for it, FX headwinds as well. So that stronger dollar reading through so much in today's action and for these corporate earnings as well. That is a stock down about 22%, and it seems that everything is coming back to the dollar. Yeah, absolutely. The strength of the dollar continues to be a major theme then, Kaylee. Coming up on the program, we'll talk about that with Constantine Veit, uh, PIMCO Portfolio Manager. We'll discuss that. We'll look ahead to the ECB meeting that is coming uh, fast approaching tomorrow, in fact. Plus, ESG funds are taking off in China, but they closely hew to Beijing's political agenda, sometimes including coal, steel and even liquor stocks. Read more of today's Big Take story on Bloomberg.com or on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is Bloomberg.
Welcome back to Bloomberg Surveillance. This is the early edition. I'm Matt Miller with Kaylee Lyons here in New York and Anna Edwards out of London. I want to issue a Bloomberg Surveillance Correct first off. I said earlier that the Bloomberg Dollar Index was a trade-weighted index against 14 currencies. It's actually 10 other currencies against which we measure the dollar, and it's hit an all-time high three days in a row. Um, let's bring in a man who knows about this a lot better than I do. Eddie Vandervault joins us, Bloomberg Markets Live editor, with a, a look at, Eddie, what, what we're uh, seeing ahead for the dollar after these incredible gains against almost all major currencies. Only the real and the Mexican peso have exceeded it this year to date. Um, what's the outlook? Yeah, look, I think, I think you know, there's... there's there's definitely a momentum trade going on in the dollar. The dollar, there's a, there's a lot of things going for the dollar. The dollar, you know, the Fed, the Fed continues to raise rates faster than uh, than comparable central banks. The U.S. economy is doing doing quite well. And then this, there's this idea that the dollar could be a haven if there is a significant or a further sell-off in equities if as we approach a recession. Um, but you know what? I... I'd also start to wonder when that momentum is going to start running out. The, and if the dollar turns, that could that could just start helping with the uh, with the with the Goldilocks trade that mm. people have been calling for since the uh, since since uh, Friday's jobs numbers. Mm, uh, right. Okay. Yes. That's, uh, more more Goldilocks would be good, I suppose. Certainly, the UK would like some. Uh, let's think about so the strong dollar taking out the yen, taking out the yuan, taking out the the euro to, it, it, to some degree, and the pound. Uh, thinking at the pound, the Bank of England's Hugh Pill saying that the Goldman Sachs call that inflation could get to 22% is plausible. A lot will come down to whether we see a cap on energy prices, though. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think I, I, the problem the problem is if you if you cap energy prices, you also uh, you also take the incentive away from people to to you know to 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 install cheap uh, more efficient boilers and uh, put solar panels on their roofs and so on. So you do make it, if you cap energy prices, that's, that's, that's sort of, it sort of works against you in the long run. But at the same time, you know, the UK economy is going to struggle if we, and particularly consumers are going to struggle if you don't. So it's a bit, you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't. At right, the OK, and that's what the pound is wrestling with. I, so, I suppose you still get a price signal if you cap it high enough, but let's see where that takes us. Eddie, thank you very much for joining us. Bloomberg's Eddie van der Velt with us on set here in London. For more market analysis from the whole of the Market Live team, MLIV Go, that is the function to use on your terminal. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition. Here's what you need to know. A record run for the dollar. One measure of the greenback reaches an all-time high as the bond market bets on aggressive Federal Reserve tightening. Liz Truss takes centre stage. The new British Prime Minister holds her first cabinet meeting this morning with action on soaring energy bills in focus. We are hearing lines just coming out right now from the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey as he testifies to Parliament. And Apple in the spotlight. It's set to unveil the iPhone 14 lineup, a new slate of smartwatches, and new AirPods. I'm Anna Edwards in London with Matt Miller and Kaylee Lines 
in New York. We'll certainly be talking tech and talking Apple a little bit later. But in the run-up to the market open in New York, what do you see, Matt? Yeah, well, we're seeing gains in futures, but they're only slight after we've had six losses in the last seven days. So this market is headed uh, down, but we're seeing a little bit of a reversal in futures um, uh, five hours away from the open. So just a tenth of 1% is the gain here. You see the 10-year uh, yield coming down a little bit to 331.30, but these yields are so high um, that if you look at them in real terms, um, that is uh, adding in or taking out inflation, however you like to look at it, uh, we see the highest real yield on the 10 years since 2019 and, and just really giant jumps across the curve. The Bloomberg dollar index is our kind of our main focus today as it's up for a third straight day. Well, a third straight record, I should say. We had a record high on the dollar index. In, on Monday, a record high on Tuesday. It was trading in London Monday. Of course, we were closed. And now another record at 13.14. And um, it's just walloping other currencies, all other currencies in the G10, as well as one that you may not consider a currency, uh, Bitcoin right now at $18,800. Um, and so that's being affected by the strength in uh, the BBDXY as well. Kaylee, what do you see in terms of pre-market movers? Well, ahead of the opening bell by four hours, Matt, because it's 5.30 Eastern Good and the point. open is at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time. You are seeing relatively muted action beneath the surface, I must say. That doesn't seem like there's that much conviction out there. Where a little bit of softness is coming through is in stocks tied to commodities, especially as you're seeing some of the metals under pressure today. A lot of that having to do with the stronger dollar story, as well as concern around fear uh, over demand in China. So Freeport McMoran down by about half of 1%. Alcoa is down by about 1.6% as well. A little bit more strength is coming on the technology side. Large cap tech may be benefiting from the fact that yields are moving lower today. So NVIDIA is up about two tenths of 1%. And ahead of that product launch, launch the far out product uh, launch that uh, Anna mentioned looking for more details on that iPhone 14 from Apple. Apple stock is up about four tenths of a percent before the bell. Kaylee, let's have a look at what's going on in European markets then. You said things look pretty muted in the U.S. And uh, really, Europe is playing catch up with the U.S. story of yesterday. So U.S. markets closing uh, more uh, firmly in the red than the European markets yesterday. And we're sort of catching up there. But we're also reflecting moves in commodity prices. Weaker commodity prices on iron ore, on copper and the like had led to underperformance by energy stocks and by basic resource stocks in the London market. Some of that perhaps turning around a little bit with a bit of recovery in the oil price. Brent crude now up by nine-tenths of one percent at 93.63. We heard from President Putin in Russia earlier on. He was saying that if we see price caps, then Russia will not supply gas and oil and other fuels. We'll see how that uh, develops. This is the UK two-year yield. Three spot zero nine is where we trade right now. We're seeing buying of gilts at the two-year horizon, buying of gilts across the curve, which is interesting as we wait for more details about how the UK government, the new uh, government, uh, plans to support UK households and businesses. And Ubisoft, a little bit of uh, interest in M&A activity here. There had been a lot of interest in M&A activity here, but we heard from Tencent and the extent of the stake that they want to take in this business. And so we see some of that M&A uh, froth perhaps coming out, down by 13.8% uh, today in the share price of this French games maker, M&A in the sector, clearly very topical of late. Let's get back to the UK story. The Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey and his colleagues are testifying to Parliament today about their economic outlook 
outlook. Let's get the latest with Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden at Westminster. It's been really difficult. We're looking at live pictures of, of this uh, uh, testimony taking place then, Lizzie. It's been very difficult, of course, for the Bank of England to prepare forecasts for the UK economy of late because they haven't known what the fiscal picture is going to look like. So they, like us, are waiting for clarity on just how much support will be going to UK households and to businesses. Also very interested to follow the conversation around regulation of the Bank of England. Indeed, and Bank of England officials always hesitant to comment on fiscal policy, but energy plans were what the MPs went in on. Governor Andrew Bailey said he's glad there is going to be a clear way forward on policy. Chief economist Hugh Pill said he thinks that Liz Truss's energy subsidies will cut inflation. Uh, our economists, of course, are saying that uh, the plans could mean inflation has peaked and a recession could be avoided. Uh, then they were asked about the pound. Andrew Bailey said that the pound has been volatile because of the volatility in energy markets. And he said that some of the pound's weakness against the dollar could actually be attributed to the dollar's strength. Uh, and then, as you say, they went on, they went on to Trussonomics. Liz Truss, of course, attacking the Bank of England and its remit. Andrew Bailey says that inflation isn't just high because of the money supply. So that the difference between Truss's diagnosis of the inflation problem and the Bank of England's. And as expected, the governor defended the BOE's inflation fighting record and its remit against her attacks. Lizzie, thank you very much. Lizzie Burden there in Westminster uh, to give us the latest on this testimony by Bank of England officials in Parliament. Joining us now with analysis of market responses to what we've heard from the new administration in the UK, Constantine Vake joins us, portfolio manager at PIMCO. Constantine, let me start with the UK story. Uh, there have been concerns, Deutsche Bank causing ripples earlier on this week, writing about the possibility of a bank of uh, payments, uh, sorry, a balance of payments crisis in the UK with the, the kindness of strangers be tested. I spoke to a guest from JP Morgan this morning and said well, he wasn't too worried about that because he thought the UK and also many European economies would have to spend big to support consumers, to support households and businesses. What's your expectation of the pressure that this new spending puts on the UK finances? Good morning. Yeah, I think the picture is broadly uh, similar across jurisdictions, so I wouldn't necessarily single out the UK. Um, you see that Europe, uh, uh, continental Europe, will be doing probably something similar. So on, on Friday, you have the EU energy ministers um, 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 planning in terms of their response to the crisis. So we expect uh, something similar, uh, i.e. more fiscal and uh, more, more cap on, on, on gas or energy, uh, which at the end, as has men been mentioned earlier, leads to somewhat uh, benigner picture near term for inflation and uh, somewhat more helpful picture also on, on the growth side whether it will be enough to avoid a, a recession uh, remains to be seen but uh, i think the, the stories or the themes are broadly similar across jurisdictions well, these days constantine as you see these uh, massive stimulus packages start to roll out again can you have any faith that um, central banks are going to be able to fight inflation i mean it seems um you know if you spend an extra 200 billion pounds and cut taxes inflation is going to be continue to be a problem no matter how many um interest rate hikes you get from the boe 
Yeah, I think uh, it's it's uh, pretty clear that. Uh, uh, the measures that have been announced will be helpful when it comes to inflation over the near term. And I think it remains somewhat ambiguous what all these measures will do uh, precisely for inflation over the medium term. And it is conceivable that uh, the Bank of England will probably have to do a little bit more uh, than it currently uh, envisaged to do. But again, I think that's, uh, that's an open question. But uh, Hang on, though, Constantine. When, when, if, if you um, all of a sudden subsidize everyone's bills, that leaves them with more money to spend on other stuff. Doesn't that drive inflation higher? I think you have seen already a, a pretty decent uh, shock uh, uh, to growth in the economies. And it's not that, you know, if we have that package, we are totally out of the boots. I think there is still uh, 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 a large uncertainty around uh, growth from here. Uh, obviously, that uh, the stimulus helps. But it's not entirely clear we will avoid everything and the consumer will now go out and spend a lot. Um, so there's also a Ricardian angle to it. It could be that consumers know that at some stage, you know, uh, uh, things will reverse also on the fiscal side. Uh, so the taps will probably not remain open forever. So again, that's why I'm, I'm not particularly worried that this means necessarily uh, by default a lot of inflationary pressures over the medium term. Okay, so there's the question of how it, rate hikes are going to impact inflation. There's also a question as to whether rate hikes can actually support currencies like the pound or the euro in the case of the ECB, given the persistent strength of the dollar. Constantine, does anything stand in the way of that? I think it's not uh, particularly helpful to try to out-hike each other, for example, when it comes to, uh, um, to rate hikes and currencies. I think currencies are obviously uh, relevant uh, for the inflation picture, and uh, the ECB obviously looks at it, also uh, uh, takes it into account in the projections. But I think I would probably uh, look more at it uh, as part of the broader financial conditions. And if you take all the other component of financial conditions in the account, for example, in, in, in Europe or continental Europe, then you will clearly see that financial conditions have tightened quite considerably. So I think uh, singling out the currency is probably only part of the picture. Well, of course, another part of the picture is lower equity prices as well, Constantine. Globally, we're seeing global stocks on track for nine days of losses in a row. We heard from Peter Oppenheimer over at Goldman Sachs earlier, essentially saying that we haven't seen a decisive low in stocks yet. So is, do you agree with that? Is all the bad news already priced in or is it not priced in enough yet? I think that's hard to tell. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty out there. Volatility is very high. There is a lot of also uncertainty about where, for example, the terminal rates for the central banks are and and how bad it gets on 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 the growth side. So I think it's 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 hard to to tell. It's pretty. Uh, I think it's reasonably safe to assume that a lot of bad news is priced in, but it's it's hard to say that this is necessarily peak in terms of bad news. Um, the winter is coming. And we have to see what, uh, what, what happens from here. So I think it's too early to, to either declare victory over, uh, uh, over the energy crisis and uh, uh, go all into risk. And I think it's also uh, wrong to be uh, uh, too pessimistic on, on, on riskier mm. segments of the markets.
Okay, and maybe that's the thought process going through the minds of some at the ECB then, Constantine, as we work our way towards, yes, winter, but also an ECB meeting tomorrow. You've mentioned it already, but how narrow is the window for hiking, do you think, at the ECB? Some describe it as quite narrow, but I think from your notes, you're suggesting that we'll still see hikes in the early part of next year. Yeah, I think uh, uh, inflation uh, pressures remain to the upside, not only over the, the near term, but also the medium term. And it will be a finely balanced decision between 50 and 75 uh, uh, um, on Thursday. I don't have a particularly strong view on balance. I think they will probably go for 50. But I think more relevant is uh, what's the destination. And it will be interesting to see tomorrow um, whether they share any thoughts on this, because so far they haven't commented much on the destination, they talked about normalizing policy, uh, which means going to somewhat neutral territory, which is probably around 1.5% for Europe. But it could be that uh, tomorrow they basically declare for the first time more, more forcefully that they might have uh, to go restrictive um, to, to tackle the inflation uh, dynamics. So this will be interesting um, to watch as well. Okay, Constantine, thank you, thank you very much. Constantine Vett joining us there from PIMCO. Coming up, we'll talk about inflation of a different variety. Uh, will we see a high, higher price for iPhones? Apple set to unveil its latest iPhone today. We'll speak to Ramon Yamas, who is research director with IDC's devices and displays team. That conversation next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition. You're looking live at the Principal Room. Coming up later today, an interview with Chevron CEO Mike Worth. That's at 12.30 p.m. in New York, 5.30 p.m. in London. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition. I'm Kaylee Lines with Matt Miller in New York and Anna Edwards in London. Well, Apple's biggest event of the year is today. The company is set to unveil the iPhone 14 line, a fresh slate of smartwatches and new AirPods. Joining us now for more is Ramon Lamas, research director with IDC's devices and displays team. He covers wearables, augmented and virtual reality and smartphones. So Ramon, let's start with the phone, the iPhone 14. Realistically, how different is it going to be? Is there going to be something entirely fundamentally new in this iPhone that is going to make everyone want to pay a lot of money and upgrade it? Look, the reason why you want to upgrade is if, it, if it's your turn in the cycle. If it's been three years or more, or your phone is broken or something like that, now's your time to do it because from what i'm hearing uh, from a uh, new apple iphone 14 is that you know what this is going to be mostly a, a camera play this is going to be perhaps an 8k video play um but look we already had the big 5g revolution a couple years ago that was the big upgrade cycle so again if you're looking to just replace it for replacement sake you know what take a look at your phone does it still work just fine stick with it a little bit longer Okay. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be out $900, $1,000, $1,200 uh, just to make that upgrade uh, possible. 
Well, to that point on pricing, Ramon, we've just spent the better part of the last hour talking about inflation that consumers are dealing with, an energy crisis in many areas of the world. People just have bigger bills to pay. Is that going to work against Apple when they are trying to introduce more expensive products? You know, that, that's a very real concern for people. And, and survey after survey, we're seeing a lot of people saying, you know, I'm holding on to my phone a little bit longer. I'm going to try to squeeze, you know, that much more time and that much more value out of our smartphones. Um, but here's the catch. And, and this is what I think you're going to see Apple do. And this is what you see a lot of its carrier partners do is that if you have a, a working Apple iPhone from, you know, previous years, would be last year, the year before, the year before that, um, you can, there's going to be some sort of discount that's going to be built into that. That's going to help, you know, take some of that pressure off. So, so suddenly that $900, $1,100, $1,300 iPhone is going to come down perhaps, you know, a couple hundred dollars. And, you know, that's the kind of savings a lot of people would like to see saying, Hey, look, I got the new iPhone 14 and I didn't have to pay full price. Uh, so there's something into that. It's not all about the watch, Ramon. Um, Apple, uh, sorry, it's not all about, all, all about the phone, the watch, uh, which is what I want to talk about, um, mm -hmm. could be improved, right? The um, heart rate measurement is only intermittent. It doesn't really do recovery and sleep as well as a whoop or um, some of the other wearables out there. What do you expect in terms of this new iteration? Boy, you know, if I can put in my wish list for the Apple Watch, it would have to be battery life. Let's make it past, uh, you know, a day or more. Uh, but, you know, there's two things to look at for Apple, uh, for almost every Apple Watch launch. You know, it's the emphasis on health and fitness. Um, and there's only so many new exercises that you can do. So take, let's take a look at health. And so let's have a deeper analysis about health. It's not so much that we could say, hey, you know, here's how much REM sleep or deep sleep or light sleep you got. It's actually giving that, you know, uh, a proactive or prescriptive advice saying, hey, you only got X number of hours of sleep. You got this kind of sleep last night. Here's how you can sleep better. And uh, the other upgrade mm -hmm. that I'm hearing about is uh, perhaps a ruggedized or even a, a larger case, larger uh, uh, display uh, Apple Watch. Uh, but that's designed for, you know, the outdoor enthusiast, uh, somebody who really puts value on being outdoors, having GPS, having, you know, being able to find your way home and to be able to weather those kinds of, you know, outdoor elements, you know, for a prolonged amount of time, because you're hearing a lot of rumors about, hey, you know, this thing is also going to be satellite uh, connected. So that says to me, you know what, maybe want to have uh, our Apple watches a little bit longer, a little bit more outdoors. And it goes back to that earlier comment about we got to have longer battery life. If that doesn't, mm. it's, if that's not there, this is going to be a non-starter for me. Okay, yeah, and just the, the, not having to char recharge everything in your life all the time would be would be good. And um, what about the the video and the quality of the video we're going to get here, Ramon? I seem to remember that last time we saw a new iPhone, there was a lot of focus on the on the video and the type of video you were able to get from it. So what's what's new this time? You know, here's the thing. If you take a look a lot of what uh, consumers do with their uh, smartphones, you know, surprisingly or not surprisingly, it's it's taking pictures and taking video. And a lot of us try to be, you know, armchair uh, cinema uh, cinema uh, editors uh, with our own video, whether you're you know, trying to get uh, shots of your kids or if you're at a special event. You know, the big uh, rumor right now, the big story is that, you know, this is going to be 8K worthy. Now, 
um, you know, if, if you're really into that and, and be able to say, here, you know what, I want to have, you know, as crisp and as bright and terrific color uh, on my iPhone, you know, this is also going to do it for you. Okay, so you're going to take a look, they're going to talk about their lenses and they're going to talk about, you know, how uh, fast they're able to render that stuff. I think the secret's going to be, the secret sauce is really going to be built into, you know, those, uh, you know, software experiences that they're able to, to bring mm. in. You know, how easy is it for you, you know, for Joe and Jane Smith on Main Street USA to say, okay, you know, I can take a video that I, I just shot for the past five minutes, cut it down to about a, a 45 second clip or shorter so that you can share it on Instagram or Twitter or anything else yeah. that you like or share it with family members. And, and so, you know, here's the great thing about Apple being Apple. They just make things so gosh darn easy to do. So that you say to yourself, well, that was simple. I'm going to do it again and again and again. Okay, Ramon, thank you very much. Yeah, we will, we will look for that then. Thanks very much for your thoughts today. Uh, Ramon Lamas joining us, Research Director with IDC's Devices and Displays team. Thank you very much for the update. Be sure to stay with Bloomberg for a special edition of Bloomberg Technology live from Apple's iPhone 14 launch event. That's at 5 p.m. in New York, 10 p.m. in London. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition. I'm Matt Miller in New York with Anna Edwards in London. Kaylee is off to uh, help anchor the surveillance program with John Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. I just want to point out quickly, Anna, I, I got a chart from Pete Dioteras a second ago showing that global stocks are down for nine days in a row. You may say, I don't remember Ferris being sick nine times. But yeah, it's the biggest losing streak since, um, well, in 11 years. And I think it's pretty uh, shocking, especially as hedge funds start getting back in the market, stop unwinding stuff and start putting bets on. Danny Berger joins us to talk about um, what hedge funds are doing right now. Danny? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Matt, this, this is from Morgan Stanley and Goldman data, which looks very similar. It's, it's a story of just this immense buying last week. Goldman's data, I think, was the most in a year, at least this year, of buying from hedge funds. And it's not necessarily that they've all of a sudden decided to become really bullish. It's more just that everything has sold off so much all of a sudden, there are some pretty interesting looking opportunities. So things are cheaper. So they're buying individual stocks, but just in, in a sign that they're not necessarily going in guns mm. a blazing. They're still shorting the overall index. Yeah, I was going to say, so this appetite, is it being expressed as individual names yeah. or is it about bigger strategies? It definitely is individual names. I mean, there's just so much doom and gloom. I mean, we're still pricing in interest rate cuts next year. So you might imagine there's still some repricing to go. So we're not seeing hedge funds buying the overall index we're not we're seeing the opposite of that we're seeing them short it so it's kind of a hedge to say okay maybe this healthcare name this tech name that looks good but i'm still not totally constructive on stocks so i'm going to short the whole thing as well okay danny thanks very much bring danny berger with the latest on those hedge fund uh, trends we're just getting some more lines with uh, continue to watch uh, the bank of england's andrew bailey as he testifies in parliament he and other members of the mpc the monetary policy committee at the boe testifying to lawmakers he's 
says, and, and of course, uh, the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, had uh, been a bit critical of some of the things that the Bank of England has done with inflation running as high as it is. And the Bank of England's Bailey, you see him there, says that Russia, not the Bank of England, uh, that will cause a UK recession. Looks like he's the only one there. End up with. Of course, there are plenty of others to the right and the left, but yes, none behind, behind him. him. Uh, there's a lot of seating. The journos didn't show up, it seems. That is it for the early edition. More surveillance is ahead. This is Bloomberg. Clarify one thing, yeah, because I think uh, Andrew described it nicely in qualitative terms, uh, putting it very starkly, um, you know. Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Transformation and Change Radio. I'm Dr. Becky Martinez and I'm here with my good colleague, friend, mentor, um, Dr. Kathy O'Bear. And there's, there's a lot of things to talk about as we think about class. And so um, we have this is just the two of us um, for some folks that have tuned in before, you know, that we've had a guest or guests. Um, and today we're here to um, talk about designing and facilitating workshops on class and classism and how we can better create more class inclusive spaces at work, at home, with colleagues, with friends. Um, and given the current moment that we're in, um, as Kathy and I were talking about before we hopped on, is it would be a disservice to our work in this show and your learning and your um, engaging in class with uh, if we didn't bring up what's happening around student forgiveness and student ca loan cancellation and what that means. Because I know that so many of my social media um, outlets have been filled with um, various degrees of buy-in or resistance or anger or joy around um, student loan um, cancellation. And let's be very clear, it's a small percentage, right? $10,000, um, maybe $20,000 um, is still so very low and small for folks um, that have debt from undergrad, grad, you know, all kinds of, um, all kinds of loan debt they may have uh, acquired throughout their, um, throughout their time in education. Kathy, any thoughts from you? 
so glad to be with you again in our part two of designing. And thank you. It was you that said we need to do this because I was not focused on. And, uh, you know, I'm the privileged group and you grew up and more marginalized. So a couple thoughts. If listeners are like, yeah, but, and they have some of those arguments, I want to suggest whether it's Twitter, do some reading and reflection because there's several things that have been blowing up my Twitter feed. So the PPP loans Mm -hmm. were forgiven from the pandemic. I hadn't realized because it's a small business person. I applied for two months, got one. Um, It covered about one third of the income that I'd lost from the pandemic in those three months. And I was grateful. I hadn't realized how many folks in Congress, how many people got 4 million loans. So it's like, do some research and wondering, um, and how come there wasn't a blowback against those loans, which probably went to many, many people with many privileged identities. The other, if people are concerned about this, how come, where were you when, uh, was that $1.7 trillion yes. tax cut that most of it went to uber wealthy and wealthy? Um, but the two other pieces that got me, and Becky, you probably knew all this, but the whole thing about compounded interest, which I still don't understand, but that so many folks end up paying far more than the original loan because over time, Mm-hmm. Um, and they did something to shift that, I think. And the final point that really got my attention was my age group and a tad older, when we went to college, it was far more affordable that on the incomes that at least middle-class folks were making, people could afford at least public, if not community colleges. And so the kind of debt that even community college, particularly for your public, much less private, It's just so different and wages have not kept up because in 1980s under Reagan, people said somebody, and they have the quote from someone who worked with him that said, if we have a quote, formally educated electorate, they will be aware of issues and they will vote that way. So those are just a few of the dynamics around class and classism and history that I saw. Um, So hi, thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, I, um, I appreciate those different layers that you brought up in regards to this conversation and this topic around student debt. As, stu- as soon as it passed, I so I'm somebody who's ah, probably in 60 or so thousand dollars in debt. Um, I've paid so much in interest. I, I, I don't even know how much it's like the loan amount's going to be. And I, I mean, I'm 50 and I probably have 10 to 15 more years to pay these loans off. Yes. Um, And I make a good salary, right? I have all of the degrees. Um, So I text a good friend who has a doctorate also. She's a Latina woman. And I was like, hey, this cancellation. Um, And so we both quickly looked online as I'm sure a lot of people did to see what the requirements would be, to see how it would impact their like lives to uh, the, a couple of this, actually the student loan companies, their websites um, went down because so many people were looking on their websites. And, um, and then as we dug a little further, we're like, oh, we don't qualify. Um, And that is probably because of when our loan was taken out, but also the amount of money that we earn um, because it's a $125 ceiling for folks that are single 
which is a hundred, a lot of money, $125,000. And like our expenses are so much right as single people um, paying the loan, like the loan is a big chunk of the money that we have to make to give um, and $10,000 is, is good. And it's so small in comparison. Um, I, I text, you know, my nephew and I was like, $10,000 of your loan should be paid off. And he's like, how do I find this out? So there's been just so many, um, people that I know that have reached out to me or that have contacted me in some way, or we've been talking about this and the impact of our lives just at the individual level. And, um, and being able to find out information and when is the application and taxes like so the the amount of paperwork that may need to go into doing this and if you understand to navigate the system i think very similar to the ppp loan uh, um and so i know that i was in conversation because i'm uh right there with you kathy i was able to take a small ppp loan out um and the it wasn't just the paperwork but it's the angst to do the paperwork um, whereas I had some friends who weren't as anxious to do that. Um, and then it was the angst to apply to have it um, canceled. Um, and depending upon what bank you're in and depending upon if you have a tax accountant or not, like there's these systems that are in play that made it very easy for some folks to get millions of dollars even though it's like, how do you qualify as a small business and it's a one point two million dollar loan that you took out that was actually just you know um canceled and i it, and I, I like this very much reflects how we do class in this country right how we do class as small business owners as individuals who grew up poor working class who may now earn a good salary in the organizations in which people are listening to us. And there's so much behind that story, right? There's so much that people don't know about individuals' finances. Um, and so I'm so excited for my nephew, right? But I'm just like, dang, $10,000 would be awesome to get off of this space. And I've been paying these loans for eight, 12 years. Mm. What I don't know if it's 125 gross or net. And so I haven't heard anyone. So if it's net, that will actually have a lot, which means after expensive, if you're like an independent consultant. Totally. So you've helped me realize how much is not known under the headlines and how many ways this could be used to keep people from getting access. Oh, Ooh. yeah. Yes, yeah, so much access, right? Um, I'm also in the process of um, trying to buy, a, buy a house or at least looking for houses. And um, one of the lenders had texted me or the lender texted me and said, if you could pay your student loans off, right, it, that would help your application. And I was like, there is no way I can do that. <laughs> like, like that's a non-negotiable, like there's no way. And so as we think about um, buying homes, there was just an article in the Atlantic yesterday or today around um, 
like people aren't starting families. Um, they're only able to stay in certain jobs um, because relocation would cost money. And if they're paying and relocation is just not possible from a financial perspective, then the degrees are awesome and it's not allowing the spaces that we can go into. And I I also want to recognize how classed this conversation even is to have the access to student loans to be in higher education. So it like, it's complicated. It is. And you reminded me, um, not only did my dad get the GI Bill, which impacted his master's degree, our loan for the house, which then had them be able to accumulate some more money. So when I got a car, I had them come look at this used car I was going to find in college. And my dad goes, no, it's not, it's not a good car. But then they got me a used car. So, and I, they may have paid for insurance. So how many folks who live middle class, upper middle class, had some support from family, and particularly if they were white, the data clearly shows how much more wealth white families have compared to Black, Latinx, Indigenous. I haven't seen on Asian, Asian American. I bet that will um, play out whether it's from islands, so Pacific Islanders, but still there's class variation, even though the stereotype is model minority. And so that's a whole nother conversation of how many folks have grandparents, parents, trusts. Um, My parents had died at some point and my grandmother who had resources died. So I was able to inherit some money and some of that actually we used for our down payment of our first house. And so as we just kind of breathe in listeners, what's been your life experience, we're just hitting some of the dynamics and just the unspokenness of class and classism. We don't talk about money, how much we have, inheritance, legacy, out of that shame or not wanting people to come after us. Well, so as I hear generational wealth and how do we not, um, uh, I, I, I would assume, right, that generational wealth can come with some Uh, it comes with great privilege and can come with some feelings. And so if people are conscious, there could be some guilt. People could be like, hell yeah. Um, And, you know, and so I think that there's the range as we think about generational wealth. There's been some, you know, so in the last two days, because there's so much been going on, they've been talking about um, the qualifications and how much the mostly I've seen brown and black folks um, in regards to how this doesn't help as much as folks are thinking that it helps. Um, and, uh, and we're just focusing um, on the, this cancellation. And as you said, like, so then how are we talking about class and money in very direct ways? Because I'm still hearing like, it being a really kind of a theoretical space that folks are at. And Mm. I know on social media, there's been that people have been sharing their student loan stories. Um, And so how do we, like, how do we talk about it? So how do we just not talk about our story, but here's the money. And here is the impact that that has on me. And here's what I can do. And here's what I can't do. Here's what I wish I could do. And here's like, 
there like the possibility isn't there at all or there is um and so how are we being more clear even our organization so how i'm I'm thinking of the listeners now how are you talking about this moment in your organization with folks that are across the class spectrum folks that have gone to college or haven't gone to college um what are the dynamics that we're paying uh, um paying attention to what's the language that folks are saying are people talking about it how do people feel about it that have paid their student loans off like well you know it feels kind of like a hazing ritual right so I went through it so you should go through it that's some of the things that I've heard Um, and I've read some stuff around people are so overjoyed because their kids or their you know the generation after them or the generations after them have a little bit of relief, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And are we talking about that right now with the folks that we work with? So as you're listening, if you're still like, how do I have these conversations around the water cooler for lunch? I just want to encourage you to keep learning and growing on social media. Because the other thing you're reminding me is while that money was quote forgiven, that means that other resources folks have will be able to be used in different ways, which will benefit everyone. And so it's not an either or, the monies will still be going into shopping, will still be going into paying tuition, you know, will still be. So just everyone breathe. If you're feeling uncomfortable, these are not easy conversations generally for folks to have. And maybe it's even just be able to say, well, you know, I have a different opinion if someone comes in with a pretty right-wing um, perspective. So I have a different opinion and I want to encourage you to do some research. I'll do some. I'll be glad to come back and have a conversation in a week or so. You don't have to do it right then if you're feeling like <gasps> frozen deer in the headlights. Um, or just say, we may disagree on this one. I'm thinking right. of the generations to come that will have a very different life than I've had. And I'm grateful. So, Well, that was something. Was there more you wanted to say before we leap into other things? Um, you know what? I, w- um, I would just say stay engaged with what's going on right now. Um, stay like, uh, And if you are resistant or, as Kathy said, if you are of the differing opinion, um, take a, like, take a look at what that class story has been for your story, as well as the generations before you to get to this space. Cause there's lots of privileged folks that are like, I think that people should pay back what they took out. Um, and how are we having that broad conversation around PPP loans uh, um, with the EIDL, uh, EIDL loans that came out two years ago for businesses, like the emergency loans um, that are soon to be paid back are starting to pay back October, November, December of this year, supposedly. Um, So there's all of these parts that are, um, there's a lot of puzzle pieces to this conversation around class and government and loans and cancellations and forbearance and forgiveness. Um, And so I, I invite you to engage, learn, talk, um, yeah, be in it. Let me research what's not getting said, because as I heard you, I still don't know how many billions are given to different corporations, whether it's oil and gas, agriculture. Um, so 
those government subsidies. And um, yeah, I just need to breathe a moment. Having this conversation in a workshop, because this is part two, designing, facilitating. If you're doing small group team conversations, organization-wide, um, voluntary conversations, um, look at part one, because we got into close to microaggressions. We started talking about that. And just reminded that entering talking about student loans could have people with very different opinions arguing. That's so good. I wouldn't recommend starting there. And so we did some scaffolding from the class story and many other things, definitions. And then it's my belief as I've done work on race and other issues that folks in the privileged group can come into this conversation with their heart opening as they hear more about the unintended class comments, practices that actually leave people feeling like they don't belong, I'm dismissed, I'm disrespected. And so we wanted to start this time with a little bit more about, so how could you teach about gather as well as teach about microaggressions, those daily indignities that are all around us that often go unseen, recognized, and particularly engaged? Yeah. <sighs> Shall we um, unpack that question a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I think uh, uh, microaggressions, and there's been many people um, throughout the shows that have just talked about language, right? Just talked about language. Um, and because language then informs how we navigate, um, how we define what we assume, um, and how do we like kind of shift language or um, have it be diff like different expectations for professionals? And, um, and so as I think about microaggressions, um, just in the language like professional or dress code or how we're showing up or um, like that, like those are little things that make the back of my hair stand. Um, when I hear that. And as you said, um, how do we uh, interrupt that? Or how do we uh, name it? Let's just not name it. Like, oh, when we've had this conversation around professional, um, and then we just continue the train moving, we haven't really talked about what that means and the impact of that. Like that's a strategy, right? <laughs> Name it in the moment, not blame folks. Say the impact that it has on me. Oh, it's making the back of my hair stand up because of. And so let's talk about what that means and how that term is utilized in our, like on our website or how we recruit or how we expect people to show up. Um, and how we expect folks in the different or in, if there's layers in the organization, right? Who do we name as professional and who do we not name as professional? I love that. Um, that could get some people wondering and then have them reflect. So what are some of the other comments that could lead people who grew up poor working class who are currently living 
that experience whose income is a poor working class income in our organization who's in a hierarchical position because it's usually top gets more money all the way quote to the and say so what are some of the comments the offhanded comments that you've seen or heard who we include in decisions and to get individuals to come up with a few and then maybe small groups and then the large group share i think we talked last time that if you wanted to put together a list of common class microaggressions have people look at that as homework and then come in saying, yeah, I've seen this, I've done this. And then to your point, so what's the impact when these occur? That could have people breathing and realizing it's not our fault. It's around us. And now it's our responsibility to recognize and shift and interrupt in the moment. The professional, all those being one set of them, but there are so many more. There are... And I think a, a skill for that is, um, I don't know if it's a skill or a tool, uh, to recognize like intent and impact. Mm-hmm. And so, so many people can spin and do spin when then they've been confronted with the term that they've used. Um, I mean, e- even in higher ed, uh, no, in nonprofits too, I get the, well, I just have a bachelor's. Um, and the impact that can have on folks that work in the organization that don't have a degree. Um, and, and it's like, what do you mean by just, right? And so then people start spinning and they're into, I didn't mean to, right? Like, I want to recognize that, but they stay in their intent that I didn't mean to rather than, oh, well, um, let's talk about what that impact was for you, because they don't want to be seen as classist or racist, but in this you know, space, um, it's classist or elitist, because who wants to? Um, and like, that's part of your story. Uh, and so how do we talk across class when these microaggressions happen? And the complication with class is that it's there's such a spectrum, there's your class of origin, there's your current class. And so that's where it gets really complex and harder to filter than maybe some other identities. Um, and so then people are like, I'm, I'm out. I'm not going to do this. You just gave me another idea that we had the class journey early in a workshop series. This could be a time to have people's pre-work go back. When you were growing up, what were some of the classist negative comments around you? And or microaggressions about, oh, I wish I were rich. So kind of rich people have everything. So just class comments, because that might be easier to talk about before we then talk about what could be going on here. To be honest, some of the ones from our early years are probably still operating but is that it's it's a little distant well i heard this in elementary school when i was my first job i heard this um i used to say this and so i'm not that anymore and then that'll teach other people once groups kind of have a it's really a grounding in it's okay to name these talk about the impact as you said and then usually there's energy of I don't want to do this anymore and I don't want you to be impacted anymore. I'm not saying everyone will have that energy to want to be a change maker, but enough people probably will. 
and then the conversation about so when have you stayed silent and why and there could be some class dynamics. I could get fired. I was my supervisor that said it. When have you spoken up? So they get that strength-based. And then looking at a whole bunch of generic tools. And on my website, backslash resources, so drkathybear.com backslash resources, lots of different webinars and packets that have just generic ways to interrupt microaggressions that might be useful to interrupt class ones. Um, and then practice. Practice, right? And um, one of the things that we have to think about is um, a lot of people don't engage right, because they don't know how to. Uh, and so how do we build our skills and competency and confidence in knowing that we may mess up? Um, and so that is one of the things it's like, okay, like this is already messy. So let's just be in the mess together and have that be a norm and okay, as opposed to needing to show up perfect, right? All the white supremacy and white, white ways of being in organizations um, with a class lens on it. Um, and uh, like, let's not freeze, because that's where people, particularly in this conversation that we're not supposed to talk about because it's taboo um, or just like, okay, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it, practice it. The list of tools I have, I say to people, go through and which ones have you used, which one could you imagine using? Mm -hmm. Then they come back and share that. And then also ask which ones would you never use because it's kind of Kathy O'Bear speak. Um, Cause if someone analyzed those tools, it's probably a very middle, upper middle class academic speak to it. That's where I mostly, not only who I am, but it's where I mostly work. And so I just encourage people, whatever sets of tools you have people look at, let them critique them and then make them their own. And then some scenarios, 10 general scenarios that could happen in the organization and small groups to practice. What could you do if some role plays that they come back and demonstrate to the group and critique and add to it? And then having teams come back to a couple scenarios, maybe once every couple of weeks, what could we do if have people bring other microaggressions? So they're practicing literally over maybe six months, a couple times a month in your teams and your workshops. So it's an ongoing development. I love that, right? And there are some, um and maybe we can talk about this when we come back from the break, but um, there are some folks that uh, there's some great shows out there that you can actually just show five minutes of a show and like you, that can be your workshop. Uh, and, and that could be part of your workshop because there are so many dynamics that exist in Superstore or American Auto, right? uh, Blackish. Like I'm trying to think of some shows that talk about class dynamics um, in sometimes overt, funny ways, but just like hit you um, so that you don't have to create it yourself. On that commercial, mm -hmm. why don't we go to break? Dr. Becky Martinez, Kathy O'Bear, Center for Transformation Change Radio. We will be back after a short break for more tools and strategies designed to facilitate workshops on class and classism.
Welcome to the Spacious Unknowing Network, Sunshine for Your Soul, with Julio and Jojo Rose, every Monday at 7 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Let your heart beat in the rhythm of your soul and guide you to new horizons and unlimited infinite love. Heaven on Earth, your online school of divinity, building your inner coach as you lay down your foundation in the new earth with you as the authority. Take action now. The number one challenge people face every day is the negative voice in their head. We work each day to turn negatives into positives. It's all a matter of perception. Our challenge at this time is to remain intensely positive and focused, creating the world we wish to live in. Wake up on purpose with Cornelia's daily online positive messages guiding us in the new paradigm. Raise yourself into happiness and inner peace daily. Elevate your personal frequency free from negativity and reprogram yourself step by step, shifting your energy patterns with positive repetition, daily building your new earth with someone you trust. All the heavy lifting has been done for you. Wake up happy with Cornelia Stephanie, BIP.com. Try free for seven days now. Can you truly say that you know and love yourself? Corny Cottrell is an author, speaker, and 21-year active duty Master Chief with the U.S. Navy, here to encourage you to take back your power and live your life with intention and purpose. Tune in to Unapologetically Favored every fourth Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific on Transformation Talk Radio. Walk in your purpose. Visit unapologeticallyfavored.com to learn more about Courtney. Hi, I'm Mary Jane Mack, and I'd love to tell you about the latest technology of the Valara Company. I've been using the Valara Company equipment, the air machines, since 1992, and I have found them to be totally successful in killing mold, mildew, and keeping your house fresh and clean. If you'd like more information on it, you can look at MaryJaneMack.com or call our office at 888-777-4232. There's a beautiful story of Princess Damayanti and King Nala. It was traditional that a princess chose whom she wanted to marry by placing a garland of flowers around his neck. Damayanti was so beautiful, intelligent and accomplished that the divine gods themselves wanted to marry her, but her heart already belonged to King Nala. Knowing this, many gods attended the choosing ceremony perfectly disguised as King Nala. Damayanti, seeing many Nullas seated around the Grand Hall, became inwardly still and quiet and prayed for guidance. She was blessed by the power of her love to see through the illusion. She placed the garland around the neck of the real King Nala, whom she loved. Join me, Saramain, on Damayanti, the show for your soul, to learn how to let the power of love cut through the illusion. And check out my website, damayanti.store.
Well, welcome and thank you for uh, joining us again. We had left off talking about uh, how we could incorporate shows um, and use clips of shows to have class workshops and conversation. And I had named a couple of my favorite, which are um, Superstore, sad that it's not there anymore, but there's lots of seasons, American Auto, um, Blackish. There's a, uh, I think there's one that's called the Abbott Elementary. Um, and so there are these, I, I guess I gear towards the, the comedy pieces of those shows, but they're like, they're so in intense class discussions in there that people are just laughing at or are quiet at. And so how can we take pieces of that? I also have an 11 year old nephew that I get to spend a lot of time with and who cartoons, right. Or preteen shows. Um, there are, there's class woven in those. And I think, what are they watching? Right. And so what are little people consuming that we need to pay more attention to with the class lens, but also then how can we take those as adults and talk about that? Right. And, and then you have this intersection of age and class and like, how lovely would it be to talk, um, have a workshop in your organization around class and age with kids shows and then how we talk about that with younger generations, like that makes me excited um, in ways that I hadn't thought about until right now. Me neither. And that might get some people in the daughter workshop. If you start with parenting, aunt and uncling, um, and how to support young people growing up with more analysis. And because I think back, most, I'll bet most shows I watch and still watch are middle to upper middle class, if not wealthy portrayals. Mm -hmm. I think Roseanne was one of the first intentional shows yep. uh, that showed white. There might've been others. And then when I think of that humorous, and when I look at it, it's just painful to watch. And so how, so I'd love to give people homework. Let's save a series of five or six of these, right? Give people homework to watch if you have young people, watch what you watch with a class lens and come back and report and maybe bring a little snippet of something if people know how to do that. Because how folks with more resources are talked about and seen as important and in charge and folks with fewer resources, not only criminal, but also not as smart, just the classes bias that we talked about in earlier shows are just so in these movies and TV shows. So use it as homework and then have people come back and share. And that is like, I think that would be a lovely entrance into having conversations around class um, that may feel um, less intimidating. And um, then like, let's just delve into our stories because some folks are like, oh, um, and, and we consume media in TV um, and there's probably some radio shows out there that have class um, lenses to that. So uh, I think it's a lovely idea for homework. Your organization might be able to have space to move, acknowledge the interpersonal, what we're consuming, how it shows up in conversations, meetings, 
and then bump it up to, that's a language we use, to get it to the systems level, policies, practices. And I remember Dr. Carmen Rivera and several other folks talked about some of the unwritten rules or the ways we just do hiring or money. So what are some ways in a workshop can we get people to raise their awareness about some of the systemic classes dynamics in society as well as in organizations? Mm-hmm. I saw somebody post a couple of days ago um, of people not needing to like take all the time to accrue stuff. And how about if we as organizations just gave that from the get-go around like time off for vacation time or PTO rather than needing to be there for five years or 10 years, like, um, like that would be lovely to be able to, how do we upfront some of those benefits rather than the longevity? And I, and I get like, I get that needing to recruit and retain and the professional development that we put into folks takes time and like takes resources and not just from a money space. Um, but how lovely would it be for somebody to know that they don't have to work two or three years if they want to go on a vacation for two days, right? Or if they want to, if they have a sick day, right? Like if they get sick, they don't have to like, wait five months and then just struggle being sick like how can we upfront some of those pieces in our organization um rather than needing for folks to feel like they are just on the like produce 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 like that for me is some anti-capitalist spaces oh uh, that is as people are hearing like what would what would that feel like for my organization? What would have felt like for me? What does that feel like as the ED or the president or the director to even have that conversation that we know may be heated or challenging? And how do we do that anyways? Like that's some systems change. Whew. And again, if you're thinking, I just want to raise people's awareness, one could five practices like this you have to have this much time to accrue this and just ask the question who by group membership who was this easier for and by group membership who was this really create barriers to be fully present and productive and um and you might have to go a little broader than just class of origin and current class bringing in race and gender and parental status and elder care and child care and maybe a few others, uh, disability status. And so, or ask the question, what, what would it be like? How, what would the impact be if we didn't kind of like Becky did, but have that be the dilemma that have people chew with um, and go, wow, what could be possible? And so bringing in there are other organizations, you know, of that actually have shifted their policy say, Here's our current policies. Here are five other organizations that have it differently. What could be different if we moved in this direction? That could be a workshop conversation that might bring up all kinds of things, but it's, it's concrete and shows where we are, what could be the impact of this practice that we pay executives this much. And when you start, you are paid 
$12 an hour and it takes you 90 days before you even get officially off of, um, what's it called? Probation. Right. So you could just wonder about, um, the other thought I had, cause I never would have thought of that without you talking about accruing. Um, I remember learning more about the history of class and classism mm. in the U.S. Now that was in an academic social justice workshop. And I do wonder whatever the organization, if you're a nonprofit, the history of class in nonprofit work in your organization, K-12, higher ed, for sure, there's a deep history of classic classism that still plays out. Again, the intersections of race will probably come in for both strongly and others. And so just have people realize most many people don't understand the GI Bill or other ways that white middle class, whites were able to move into the middle class or the FHA loans, and if I have that right. So some of that could, again, it's not personal, it's not organization. It's like, wow, I didn't realize all the different class access, class privilege that went to some groups and not others. Those are some ideas I have. And so um, class action um, has some, like some, they're a nonprofit organization. They do really good work around class and across class. And so they have some of that historical piece um, written down. Um, uh, uh, Betsy, um, Lenar Wright. There's a, there's a book that she has um, that she's talked about um, class and the impact um, for poor and working class folks. So there's some really good literature out there um, that people can get a hold of because I think people can get stuck of, oh my gosh, if it's overwhelming, how do I do all of this? But how are those like, how are there some small pieces to that? And I lit up a little, Kathy, when you said it would be awesome to do the like class history of the organization, right? And, and no shame or blame, but like, how did the organization start, right? How many people were there? How is it like grown or changed? Even if we just look at salaries or benefit packages or how many people and then create critical moments. And so what allowed us to do, like what allowed us to have two more hires, right? Or what allowed like um, us to do this particular program with the community um, so that there's a like internally folks can just see the trajectory of their organization and what are any class related moments and there's going to be intersections at least I assume there would be um, but that is a like that's a lovely um, place to be able to play at the organizational level, like what has shifted, what has changed, why did we start, um, where is it at now um, with the class lens? Ooh, and building on that new idea, who created yeah. and what were their values and what were their expected norms? So what was their class background and how did they most likely unconsciously bring in upper middle class, white, generally culture norms, how has our demographic shifted? How much does that play into professional? What that means? So just keep breathing, listeners. We're having fun brainstorming, but any and all of this is possible. 
um, to have people then reflect what are our current policies and practices, hiring, promotion, onboarding, discipline, time off, as you said, who can leave their desk, who has to stay so they can pick up the phone, and what are our assumptions and how much of that is based in this kind of class factory system that I think many of our organizations might still be based on. Who gets the freedom to move around? Who has to stay literally attached to the loom when you're making the metaphor, but you're making um, cloth? Who is under a microscope if they aren't exactly here on time or they take a break that's five minutes longer and who gets the benefit of the doubt and seem to be working? There are so many places to go with unwritten rules and the enforcement of policy. Who gets enforced, who doesn't? And there's often a, a, a gradation by hierarchy, which is so connected to current wealth, income, class. Yeah, right? Like that is a, I think that that's right there. That's like a, a years long workshop series. Uh, and so the other thing is, is it doesn't have to be fixed tomorrow because we can get into that mode really mm -hmm. quickly. Uh, I think of our, um, our work, or at least most of my, not most of my work, some of my work with our good colleague, Jamie, um, is the model of awareness, knowledge, skills, and action. And so how do we not like become aware of something and quickly go to that action space? Like it takes like, huh, let's, we're going to gather this historical context. And then maybe each point of the historical context can be engaged. Like that's a, that's a year's worth of really good professional development, organizational work. And a recession could be some more awareness. Mm -hmm. How does this show up in unproductively? Mm -hmm. What could we do in the moment? How do we be long-term change agents? So some folks are listening. It's like, we got to create some change. I don't want to hear, but right. you can put it literally into every two hour session. Make sure you have awareness some skill building, some action without jumping to solution too far before people understand like the dynamics of class privilege. I know as a white person, I resisted looking at white privilege forever. And then when someone suggested I had class privilege, I had a similar bristling. I don't think I resisted as long because I'd already done some work around recognizing white privilege and all the different ways that doors were open for me because I was white. And again, if you're listening and you're bristling, just breathe. Um, I think I had more guilt around class privilege than I did white privilege. I'm like, I was born this way. Mm -hmm. uh, class privilege has shifted for me as I have had more income, more wealth, more resources, investments over time. And so how could one do in a workshop, prepare people to get ready and then talk about examples of class privilege? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, whoever is going to do that, like do your work on your own stuff before you go into that space. And so I, um, I've had the delight of working with Kathy for so many years now. And um, you, you often talk about, and this is even my story around race, it, like it takes time to develop the capacity to be able to talk about it. Um, and so that we don't 
cause more damage. Um, and so it's not just about reading a book or reading an article or talking with some friends, like whoever facilitates this work needs to have enough capacity to be able to do that. And we don't want that to deter folks from doing it. Um, and that you need to be clear enough to know what am I uncomfortable with? What am I needing to unpack? Like what may be my trigger in the space? And that's why Kathy does such good work around triggers, right? What, um, you know, what comes up for me? What have, what's been my feedback? Like where are my emotions sitting in this space? All of that is a part of just facilitating, just facilitating this really important work. Um, and so, uh, go do some of those like that awareness, knowledge and skills to be able to get to the action. And the action may be like, I got to do some awareness, knowledge and skills to be able to even facilitate a conversation around class. Like that's the action. Right. Um, Cause otherwise if we go just to the time, like to the, you know, the historical line, like that's not going to go well. Um, or it's going to stay very much in a theory space. And we're not talking about how it like practically lives in the organization. And in our bodies. And so if you're co-facilitating one model is often a privilege marginalized or several people, a couple privilege, because there's so many different stories. And then having that group of conveners, facilitators meet beforehand, experience every activity, do their deeper work, as you're saying, debrief, do the experiences you're going to lead the next time. Um, around privilege, I wonder, do you think class action has a list of class privilege that would be easy to access? Because I've seen lots. I, I have not seen that. Mm -hmm. So a thought, A, we may put one together. Mm -hmm. I have a long list of white privilege, not only the Peggy Mac Dr. McIntosh's work, but I've added to it, kind of making it more organizational. Um, and also some of the lists of microaggressions that whites do. I wonder if taking those and then shifting it to class, it just, it may not be as hard as it may be sounding right now, but mm -hmm. those sorts of self-reflections of like, Ooh, I've done that. I've seen that. Or what kind of privilege is it when someone comes in in a suit I'm going to go work in a corporation. I'm going, it's my first time public, I don't know, three, four years. I don't think I've been public in a corporation in person in years. Mm -hmm. So I was already thinking, well, I'm going to wear my red jacket because I look good. It's a power jacket. And then I caught myself. So how do we treat folks who dress in a way that looks upper middle class compared? So class privilege comes out, dress, speech, um, we already said who gets the flexibility to run their own lives and schedules, who doesn't get questions. So mm -hmm. if you're yep. earlier, doing that in affinity spaces so that right. folks with either who grew up poor working class might be in a group or two different groups, people who grew up middle class, people that are currently in supervisor, manager, upper leadership. So you could even do it that way and have those conversations about. So what are examples of class privilege that exist here? What if you can collect them up on a jam board? Um, oh, you probably could. I mean, I think that that would completely be possible. And um, as I was hearing you uh, talking, for me, it's sometimes just the going out to dinner piece. 
right? And so like who ordered, like, can I order, like, uh, I, I didn't grow up ordering appetizers. Um, and so I go out with organizations now when they take me out to dinner and there's the expectation that you order an appetizer and you order the entree and you order the dessert. Um, and so I have all of this class, middle-class plus experience. Um, and even when I go out with, you know, whoever's bringing me on campus or into organization. And there's this, it's like, okay, so what are they going to order and what is okay to order? And because for me, it's like, if I don't finish my food, um, is it okay to take it away as a, um, in a to-go box? But like, it's my expectation. I need to eat an appetizer, an entree and dessert. Cause I don't think I can eat all of that. I can't anymore. And people do. And so as the, person who's brought in right or is that new employee um those little things of what is the norm in this organization and I haven't been taught to or practiced to do these things that may be a middle class middle class plus value um, that are microaggressions even though the organization may be well intentioned to I just want to take you to dinner so in a workshop depending on what the socializing is, that could be the question. Friday afternoon gatherings, out to dinner with folks, if there is conferencing, and how are those norms classed? And how, what's the anxiety folks made the first, second, fifth, twelfth time? And then how do we shift those? Um, Someone had mentioned on the idea you're going to be doing birthday parties, right? Everybody ships in $15. Um, and so all the different ways we do business, whether it's a nonprofit, a corporation, higher ed, K-12, that could have differential impact. Collecting those up on a Jamboard or Google Docs mm-hmm. so people could do it anonymously, have them put in what are some policies and practices we need to analyze with a race uh, class lens. See, I said race, but it might be a both and. hmm So those could be ways in workshops to gather some ideas about an organization and then use them as activities um, for people to deepen their skills so that in the moment they can hear it in a meeting. That's what we're moving towards, is how can people be planning and have enough awareness to go, can we slow down? Could there be a class implication to that? Could there be some folks in our organization that that would easily meet their needs and some that actually it would create a barrier, feel uncomfortable or anxious? And just asking those questions in meetings when we're planning or, to be honest, on the golf course where sometimes decisions get made, talk about class, Mm -hmm. someone just needs to speak up. Um, Yeah. And um, as the leaders of the organization, or if you have some type of privilege in it, uh, being okay with whatever answer is going to come back. Right. And so can we talk about it? Yeah. But like, how are you going to, how is the organization going to receive the answer and take action on the answer? Otherwise people are just going to become frustrated and not want to say anything. Uh, And so um, you, uh, you know, leadership open enough to be like, okay, so we're going to do something with this feedback that we're getting or this conversation that we're having. So that says to so the organizers, even before you 
do these workshops, have those conversations with leaders, get their buy-in and commitment, um, and then make sure the confidentiality of the group is withheld right. so that you're meeting with leaders. If the group says, like, this is what we're thinking, if we do some charting or jam boards and we have strategies for change, which might be a part three, because we've got several more questions that could be done in a workshop, that the facilitators are the ones that share generically, these are the kind of things that came up. Or here are the ideas for change that came up. Right. I love that. So this is a system intervention, the workshop itself. Whew. Right, right. And, um, and then how are we transparent with everybody, everyone in the organization that these are the conversations that we're having? Uh, so that it doesn't feel, right, um, it's just folks in the top that are having the conversation or that. And so uh, let's be transparent with the organization of how we're wanting to engage with the class and class, like a class lens. And so here's what we're doing in these moments. Know that we're going to bring folks in, um, but they're very clear of the process because as we think about class and positionality, usually the leaders are the holders of this information and don't tell other folks. So listeners, open forums, not only before the workshop to see if even maybe you didn't have some conversations, you could have an open forum where you ask for microaggressions, those little policy practices that people can write out anonymously, then you have that data you can use in the workshop and then say, and then we're twice we're doing like six, a six years, hope you come. But even if you don't, we're just going to have a couple open sessions where we as facilitators, maybe some group members will come together and say, this is what we're learning. This is what we're doing. And these are some recommendations already we're having. And then at the end, here are some recommendations for the whole organization that itself is disruptive of, I love that Dr. Martinez, you go Becky. There we go. You said it so much clearer or different than I did. So thank nice you catch. for that. Yes. Um, and that, right. And so I even think about how you and I interact and like who has the better answer, which is all kinds of like identity and class stuff. And that's the thing that we can talk about, right. In organizations. So I am loving this mm. session, this conversation, because we have talked about it at individual group and systems. Um, at least to a, a degree. Um, so it excites me for folks to listen to it. My guess is part three, we'll do even more around how do you engage resistance when you have it? And then some activities to help people envision what's possible, really talk about how close we are to get some energy for change, some unwritten rules. So we might get through the rest of these questions and one more. I hope you all have patience and really appreciating the brilliance of Dr. Becky Martinez, the new ideas that come to me while she's talking. Take what you like, leave the rest for now and come back next time. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you in the next month. Go Wonderful. Well. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. 
That's drkathyobear.com. Views expressed on this program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not necessarily reflect the views of the station, its management, or advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Today with Amazon Business, Shannon Stuckey of Walburn Woodworking helped her team buy 63 circular saws. Okay, Andy, take it easy. Now she uses her time to focus on growing something big. Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Today's episode is brought to you by Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash and become a $2 backer today and get early access to the new episodes. I'll be leaving a link in the description down below, but for now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Augment Experience Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, Josh Ravellis. I'm a student, musician, and a gamer at heart. Join me as I sit down every week to talk about all the latest news in the technology, business, and video game world. I hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to the show. My name is Joshua Vellis. I'm your host as usual, and obviously, welcome back to the show. Today's episode 229 of the show. And before we get started, let's just do a little bit of house cleaning kit because, well, it only makes sense to be doing so. Let's just get on with the house cleaning. I do want to say thank you guys for coming back and listening to today's episode. It does mean a lot to me. You guys constantly take time in your days to balance episodes, to show these episodes, to constantly keep letting me know how you feel. Whether you like my stupid face or not, as you can clearly see my face if you're watching the little video version here. Yeah, my beard and my mustache are growing out again. And, you know, obviously my mother's going to be pissed because, you know, how Hispanic moms can be with facial hair. If, you know, if you're Hispanic, you can probably relate that they don't seem to like it a lot. So, and to be honest, I'm probably going to get my beard and stuff trimmed before the job fair coming up this month, which I'm very excited for, which we might talk about that a little bit later. Not in this episode, but, you know, a little bit later down the line. But I do want to say thank you guys again for coming back and listening, whether you're watching this episode on YouTube or you're listening to the audio version, wherever you like to listen to your podcast. At the end of the day, it's greatly appreciated. And I thank you guys all for your love and support. Obviously, thank you to the Patreon backers as well for supporting the show. And if you want to become one, you can click the link down below. I know this is a very interesting week, especially at the time that this episode is coming out, because normally if you are keeping track with the show, or if this is your first time, welcome. Hi there. So, <laughs> normally the episodes release on Wednesday at noon. Today at noon is going to be the... <clears throat> Man, my voice is really killing me today. But we still have this episode to do because it's actually kind of important. Because it's also ironic that this episode is coming out today. Because at noon, or you know, here Central Standard Time noon... The Apple event is happening. Will it be showing off the new iPhones, the new Apple Watch, maybe new iPads, maybe, I don't know, new AirPods. 
So it's kind of funny that this episode is coming out today because we're talking about a recent story that has been coming out and this has been rumored for a while and I want to preference this from the get-go. These are rumors. These are speculation based off trends and also where money has been allocated. This is a story that's been brewing for a while now, but it's also nothing new in the sense that this has actually happened kind of almost a decade ago. And so that's what we're talking about here today, which is this idea that Apple is forcing ads on future devices, future services. And this is where I want us to present this question throughout this episode and something you guys can think on. Are larger firms, or in this case, larger companies, because firms and companies are interchangeable in this case, are larger firms inherently evil from by design? And this is something that we really need to think about, ponder, because yes, me just saying that Apple forcing ads on future devices and future services, it kind of scares some people because... You know, for example, I don't think anybody wants to be seeing an ad on their Apple Watch while they're going for, you know, a run or working out in the gym. I don't think people want to, you know, people, when they hear ads being forced into something, and in this case, Apple, is very concerning, especially in the case that we want to acknowledge Apple. In this case, they built up this reputation as security and a privacy focused company that yes originally they were not a company that was designed for creating content which in this case they are now you know they were primarily known for hardware and software now they're doing a lot more and now they want to expand allegedly so i want us to think about these things and break it down into these categories why is this happening now how is this going to affect things today and how can things be affected in the future? So let's talk about the why is this happening now. Again, this is all rumors and speculation based off current trends and insider you know, rumblings. But let's talk about it. Why does this make sense that this is happening now? And let's see. As we have currently seen with the smartphone market, currently trends are you know, showing a decline, or at least the maturity phase in a production up in the, you know, the product life cycle, the maturity phase where, hey, it's already, you know, matured, we're already at the point where you can't really reinvent the wheel here. And I know some people try to argue with me about flip phones. And I'm like, guys, flip phones aren't going to do anything. It's going to be a fad that's going to die off very quickly. It's going to happen. It is not practical. It is not reliable. It is not a, like, I understand why people want it and why it's obviously very successful. Well, depending on what you define as successful, it's one of those things where, why is it happening now? And yes, people could say, well, smartphone sales are currently declining and clearly Apple realizes this, like, why are they raising prices on their smartphones? Some people can, there's so many things that can go into it, but let's talk about it. So the smartphone market in decline, obviously sales for Macs and I would say iPad sales are currently still good, but it's just, you know, it, uh, the iPad is just there. Obviously AirPods, 
those things were a runaway success. The Apple Watch is still one of the most, I'd say, adored or favorable products that they sell because yes, it is a very good watch. Does it aesthetically look the best? No, obviously this is why Apple's probably working towards something new, which let's be honest, we probably might see that at the event today. It's one of those things where there are many things. Now, this is why I said earlier that this isn't new. If you remember back, or at least during the times when Steve Jobs was still alive and still in charge of Apple, during the introduction of iOS 4, there was this thing called IAD, which was essentially Apple wanting to revolutionize or find a way to make a change in mobile marketing. Clearly that failed miserably and yeah, it was a very big failure on Apple's part. They acknowledged it, it was a poor choice. So why now? If we look at Apple's current record, they obviously are not an advertising company. If anything, yes, they are a hardware and service company that also creates content now as well. You could also argue that they are one of the largest marketing firms on the planet because, well, they also have some of the best marketing that has ever been seen so far in our current lifetime. They've clearly created such, I would say, a very rich way of getting people to buy their products, buy their services, to stay into this ecosystem and stay loyal to death that they will literally not switch, even though there could be better options for them that are better suited for their use cases, but they won't switch. This is why you see people that, you know, they can get mad at iPhones. They're like, you know, I hate iPhones, I hate iOS, but it's because of some of these features like X, Y, and Z, I just can't switch. Even though, yes, another phone or another product would be a better suited for my use case, I just can't see myself switching. The same thing goes for MacBooks and macOS or that some people view like, hey, the professionals in this space, they don't see themselves going back to Mac or at least they don't want to continue supporting them because they felt that Apple has really, you know, let them down, that Apple is not supporting them. Apple is not focused on the actual professionals anymore even though they claim to make devices that are for prosumers or pro users in this case, even though they've done some things that are like, mm, you know, pro users love repairability. They're always, pro users will always be right to repair oriented and focused. That's just how it is because they obviously want to make their machine last the longest they can. They want to be able to fix it, upgrade it, do whatever they need to it without having to rely on Apple in this case. And clearly, Apple is going away from that, especially with their own homegrown silicone. It's one of those things where they're starting to see that, hey, revenue's capping out in our current spaces. Maybe we can find another place to generate revenue. And it's very weird for a company like Apple to do this in this case, because prime example, Apple was not an advertising company, but they want to, they're increasing their budget towards advertising now. They're actually putting a good amount of money towards now that they want to start doing advertising and start providing ads and say maps, maybe Apple TV, 
maybe Apple News, Apple Podcasts, start promoting apps inside, or in this case, ads inside of their apps to get people more you know, aware of maybe more products that they offer. You know, third-party ads, which is a very common thing in streaming services and obviously podcasts if you don't pay for the premium subscriptions to not have to deal with ads. Prime example, like YouTube premium, Spotify premium, you know, it's one of those things where I get where they're coming from. Now it's a bit hypocritical if you would say, because Apple has always been this company, especially publicly roasting Facebook, roasting Google, like companies that are well known for ads. That's what they're known for. They're giant ad pumping machines. And yet Apple was very, I'd say critical. That would be the better word to use in this case. They were very critical towards Google and Facebook that they want to be keeping users privacy and security at the forefront of everything that in this case, they acknowledge that they can make tons of money off their consumers if, or in this case, their customer base, if they wanted to, they acknowledge it's just a long time ago, or even not even a long time ago, a while back, they said, we don't want to big asterisk in there. And now we see rumblings that Apple is entering the advertising business. And some people maybe are not aware of it. Some people are just like, you know, asking why now? That's what we're trying to do here too, because you could say many reasons, like we've acknowledged and listed out some reasons. Smartphone sales declining, their bread and butter. Obviously, people are not buying Macs as much as they normally would, or in this case, the people that they would want them to, because now they have a new customer base, content creators in this case, because obviously content creation is now a much bigger deal and is now taken much more seriously nowadays as a profession. We also have to think about factors as say, I don't know, the fact that, well, Obviously, advertising makes a lot of money, and Apple is now entering the service market. They've been in the service market for a while with podcasts, music, TV, or in this case, streaming. This is a big thing because we talk about, and this actually transitions perfectly into talking about how this could affect now. We are starting to see this trend and pattern in streaming services where Yes, you can get a cheaper plan that has ads, but if you want the ad-free experience, you bump up to a higher tier, a higher price margin. And as we've seen with example of Disney Plus, Disney Plus originally started as an ad-free experience. They raised the price, then they raised it again, and then they included a tier at the original price, but with advertising. Same Hulu does the same thing where, you know, the regular tier, it has ads, same thing goes for, they bump up and even Netflix is now doing that too, where all of these companies are starting to realize that, Hey, advertising does make a lot of money. And this is ironic that I'm the one saying this because I'm a marketing major, even though yes, advertising and marketing are two separate things, but they do work hand in hand with one another. That's something that's a very important distinction that you know, in business school, and in my case, you know, obviously going through college, and I think even the average person with a semblance of 
common sense could figure that out that obviously advertising and marketing are not the exact same thing it's more of a you know working hand in hand with one another and this is where a lot of people are worried because we have a launch of a new iphone we have a launch of a new apple watch we have maybe some new products coming in as well there's rumblings about apple's vr headset and entering the vr ar space much more seriously with well in this case let's call it competition for you know the oculus quest 2 so a lot of people are concerned that how is this going to affect products like that are coming out now products and services that are available now and yes i'm not going to be surprised if we start seeing apple include ads in you know start including an ad included tier and tv and music and podcasts whatever it may be like even like this is what worries me is the fact that they talked about it and being included in maps because i'm like i don't want to see ads while i'm using my map like some people can say well google does this too and i'm like well i've you know i say this from my experience i've used google maps a lot i've yet to see an ad pop up while i'm trying to go to mcdonald's you get what i'm saying like it's it's concerning i'm not gonna sit here and pretend like it's not concerning but we also have to acknowledge that it's this terrible mindset that it's just what's best for business and i know some of you probably heard that term or that that phrase before maybe it's used towards you when you're getting fired from a job maybe someone's getting letting let go maybe not 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 be you but somebody you know and the same thing goes for companies when they make decisions that it's just it's what's best for business and if apple deems that hey maybe dipping their toes in the advertising business much more and taking it much more seriously if they deem this as what's best for business that has to imply that things have changed that they want to find and i know i've said this multiple times and i think this is just general good advice that you should diversify your revenue stream it should be diverse you shouldn't just rely on one place for all your revenue because if you lose it then well you're sol you're out of luck here and it's one of those things that it makes sense from a corporation standpoint that you want to expand how you're gaining revenue. And if they deem that advertising is another way to go about it, because they've seen it with you know, sports events like the Super Bowl, companies will pay millions to billions of dollars just to get a 30 second ad on the Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Like, because of the exposure, and in this case, Apple, we know that their products and services are used by the billions they obviously in the us almost the majority of the people have an iphone even people around the world a good amount of people have iphones it's clearly you know and we can talk about the importance of the iphone and the socioeconomics behind it and things like that another time because to be honest it's actually very interesting but the way that it's affecting things now is, yes, we could start seeing an influx of ad-based tiers 
into subscription services that are available right now. We could start seeing like prime example with Android phones as we've already seen with Samsung. The fact that ads are on the lock screen, the home screen, that you can see ads and you'll get notifications for ads and it's just like, that's kind of annoying. That's kind of stupid. Like currently I bought an LG V60 and you're probably wondering why we'll, we'll be doing a video or an episode about that in the coming weeks and months. But the point still stands. We've seen how smartphone makers have done now. Amazon, uh, Amazon doing with all their tablets that there's, you know, one that has ads, the other one that doesn't have ads. You have you know, same thing with buying smartphones. You can buy one with ads, without ads, you know, preloaded Amazon software, one without Amazon software, Samsung doing that with ads on the home screen and lock screen for their products, their services. You get what I'm saying? Like, it's not going to be surprising if we start seeing things like that baked in, say, into the latest iOS version, start seeing things baked into updates into ads and also some of these services. But we also want to talk about how is this going to affect, well, things in the future, because we have to be thinking about the future here. And it goes back to this question that I presented at the beginning. Are larger firms inherently evil by design? Because some people have said, as a company grows larger and larger, it is only natural that they're going to answer to more stakeholders and the stakeholders will want different things in comparison to the consumers because obviously stakeholders in this case, or I wouldn't say stakeholders, let's say the shareholders in this case, the shareholders, what do they want? A return on their investment. That is just the facts here. They obviously want a return on their investment. That's why they invested in the company to begin with. And clearly sometimes a return on investment and doing what's best for business is not necessarily best for the consumer. And for me, it's going to be very concerning, especially given the fact that Apple has been very vocal, very public about protecting customer data, protecting privacy in general. And we've started to see this trend and this pattern of them not really being about that. Prime example with the whole thing of scanning your photos and sending that information off to the authorities if they, you know, see specific content. Obviously that is a violation of privacy. Some people can argue, we can argue about that, but if this is an issue about privacy, we can talk about how this is, it's been shown multiple times that this is a very bad idea. That's why they got so much pushback because we just didn't get the idea. Yeah, homie, it's just your idea was crap to begin with. And it got pointed out by security experts that no, this is a terrible idea. At the same time, we've seen Apple do things that are not very consumer friendly. Prime example. Yes, we can praise the performance of Apple Silicon and things like that. This does make the viability or the repairability of Macs much more difficult and much more problematic. Yes, we've seen the right to repair, like Apple, you know, expanding, allowing consumers to replace their screens, batteries, you know, starting to see this program. But another thing they kind of left out is how much more difficult they've made the repairs. They didn't tell you that part because they wanted to control the narrative about, oh, well, now we're allowing consumers to repair their stuff. 
They can pay for the parts. They can pay for the equipment. You know, we'll rent it out to them and send them out the stuff. But they don't tell you that they've made the process much trickier and can actually, if anything, they're kind of setting you up for failure to begin with. But they don't want to tell you that part. You see what I'm getting at is that, yeah, we can argue that it just makes sense an organization or a company this large. Yes, their main objective, their main goal be generating revenue. That's why we've always said this. Companies are not your friends. Stop pretending that they are because they are not. They have a bottom line to begin with. And yes, they can make great products. They can have great customer service. They can, you know, do some great outreach, do, you know, X, Y, and Z. And that's fine and dandy. But don't go off the deep end and pretending that they're your friends. Because, homie, no. That's why people don't understand this idea of brand loyalty. Because in anything, brand loyalty is actually kind of stupid. Like, why would you be loyal to a brand that will throw you under the bus at any moment? And some people can say, well, Josh, isn't that a bit pessimistic? I'm like, no, that is just the reality of it. They don't answer to you. Like, as much as people say, well, yeah, they do because we pay. Homie, they don't. if they don't feel like they need to answer to you because they know you'll keep buying their crap... Do you honestly think they won't take advantage of you if they're given the opportunity and you'll still keep buying it? And this is where things can get problematic, especially as we talk about the future, because we might start seeing things like, oh, well, you can buy the iPhone for cheaper. It will just have ads baked in. Or you can buy, you know, a more expensive model, but with no ads. And some people might say, well, Josh, that will never happen. Are you sure about that? History has said otherwise. Patterns. This is why people get upset when you start talking about pattern recognition. I'm like, guys, there is a reason why there are studies. There's a reason why this is such a big field of pattern recognition. Why so many, like in this case in marketing and in accounting and in other firms and just any type of discipline, pattern recognition is very important because when you start seeing patterns, you see trends, you start making connections, you start making correlations, you start seeing how things are repeatable. That's why people always coin that phrase, don't let history repeat itself, and yet it always does because nobody pays attention to history. So, start paying attention to history class, kids. It's really good for you. You might actually learn something, even though you might think you, you aren't. There are important things in there. But my point still stands. If you don't think Apple will do that, you are delusional. I'm sorry if that comes off very harsh and very aggressive. But those are the facts. Is if you don't think that they'll do this, and some this could be worst case scenario. We acknowledge that this is worst case scenario. That they'll start doing that, like what you know. Amazon is doing with say their Kindle products where there's an ad version and there's an ad free version. If you don't think Apple will go off the deep end, if they realize they can make more money doing that, do you not think they would? Because think about it, the buying the ad free version at the end of the day is still pointless because the subscriptions are going to have ads. If you think about it, if you buy the ad ad included version, they're milking you dry for more money. Like, yeah, they might take a, a loss up front. 
they'll make it all back because you keep seeing all their ads and you get what I'm saying is it starts to add up and then you start seeing how uh, the money starts rolling in. There's a reason why Apple was a $2 trillion company, guys. They know how to make money. They know how to get you suckers to keep buying their crap. And it's just, there are a lot of concerns here. But I want this to be an ongoing conversation, which we will have guests and things come on to talk about this stuff. Because I know I want to, like, just spoilers. I like to bring Juan back on the show to have a conversation about this because I know someone like him has a lot more experience than me. He obviously has a lot more years under his belt than I do. He's seen much more than I have. Like, yeah, I can do my research. I can do my homework about like stuff that he's seen, but he's also seen it firsthand. He's seen things and experienced things that I just haven't because, you know, just age. And that's fair. He's just, he's lived longer. He's experienced more. Same thing goes for any guest that I bring on that's older than me. There's a reason why we bring them on is because they bring knowledge. They bring something to the table that makes them valuable. And that's something that I've always, I've always said this about people. Everybody's experience and knowledge and expertise is valuable because it's all unique. It's all stuff that they have learned. Everyone is unique in their own way. But to close this all off. Am I worried that Apple will go off the deep end? Yeah, I can see it. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's 100% going to happen. I hope that they get a ton of pushback from this and that they reconsider it because it obviously will make them look extremely hypocritical and contradictory to their mission statement for what they, you know, what they want to accomplish, what their current goals and aspirations are. It will make them look terrible. And a PR nightmare is not a good thing. As much as people say bad, you know, any PR is good PR, no. As we're currently seeing with Sony, they're currently getting kicked on the dick right now because of a lot of bad PR. So, should you be worried? Yes. Should you be like, oh, I'm ditching all my Apple products right now? No but be mindful of what's going on around you. And that's the whole point that we do stuff like this. And we talk about topics like this is because we want people to be aware of what's going on around them. But let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. Are you worried? Are you concerned? Or you think, hey, this is just being blown out of proportion. Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Again, I still find it ironic that this episode is actually going to come out exactly at the start of the apple event so i'm not going to be hurt if you guys go watch that but i think it's also something important to have especially at the launch of some new apple products just something to be mindful of and to pay attention during these events because you might start seeing some things and you might start seeing hints of things in there but Again, thank you guys so much for your love and support. It really does mean a lot to me. You guys constantly take time in your days to balance episodes, to share these episodes, to let me know how you feel about them. The fact that I can at least have a portion of your day that you guys can watch this episode or listen to it at your own, you know, at your own leisure whenever you want. And I just greatly appreciate it because I like starting conversations. I like keeping people engaged with meaningful conversations. And well, I like having fun talking about this kind of stuff. So Again, thank you guys so much for it. I really do appreciate it. I know things have been a bit hectic over here because of work, school, personal stuff. It's just, it's definitely a lot, but 
I do see the benefits to all of this because, hey, I get to graduate. So it's very exciting because I'll be not obviously I know my graduation is like a year away, but it's almost here. So there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk about. And that's the beautiful thing is we have the platform, we have the means to do it. So why not? But I thank you guys for everything. I hope you guys have yourselves a wonderful week and weekend. I hope everybody had a great Labor Day weekend and just everybody had fun and relaxed and just got to breathe a little bit. Because I know this year, it's also crazy to think about that. What? We got three more months and the end of the, and it's 2023. So it's crazy. But I'm excited to see how things turn out for the rest of this year. But again, thank you guys for everything. I hope you guys have yourselves a wonderful week and weekend. And as always, don't do anything dumb, guys. Please continue to be kind and respectful to those around you because the world is still a weird place. And the best thing we can do is just be thoughtful and intentional with people and their time. But thank you guys for everything. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye, guys. Hey there. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day and listening to today's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, whether it be financially, clicking the follow button, or just sharing the episode, it all works for me, guys. Thank you guys so much for your time, and I love you guys to death. Right here in your neighborhood. Here's a little tale about hard-to-recycle plastics. Their destinies were changed. Their new lives are fantastic. What once was trash can live on as new things with a program that complements your regular recycling. plastics can be so much more. Give this trash the second chance it was hoping hard-to-recycle plastics can be so much more. Participate in the Hefty Energy Bag program happening in your neighborhood today. Jungle.